Thanks for tuning in, everybody, to Movie Geeks United. This is our 14th year doing this particular theme of show. It is the summer of 1997. And as usual, every year we are joined by our good buddy, Aaron Ana Diaz. Hey, Aaron. Hello, everyone. Greetings. It's that once, once a year that the audience is able to hear your voice. And it's just a, a cherished like, moment for all. I'm like Elvis. Got to keep them wanting more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, summer of 1997, we started with the, with the summer of 83, 14 years ago. So, uh, And these shows are always so chock full packed. So let's just get right into it. No chit chat. Yes. Let's start with May 2nd. A comedy that... That, you know, it's it's a rarity nowadays, especially, but a comedy that it, it informed the culture. Austin Powers, the first Austin Powers movie. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, me and my friends, we went. Uh, actually, we saw it twice. Had the soundtrack CD. Um, and uh, the trailer just looked kind of, you know, off kilter and different enough to, like, you know, let's check it out and... It was kind of one of those things that we thought, uh, I remember we, we were thinking it could be good, has a lot of potential being bad, but we went and we were surprised how funny it was. Um, you know, and, and um, obviously, and, uh, I caught all, a lot of the uh, uh, movie references that maybe casual viewers didn't uh, automatically get. I'm sure, I mean, they obviously got the James Bond stuff, but I mean, I'm talking more of the Matt Helm, the... Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that kind of stuff that's that's in the corners of the movie, and uh, it was just kind of different enough at the time, and uh, and uh, really kind of like going into the swinging, really going into that swinging London vibe, bringing that you know that wasn't very, uh, you know that wasn't you know a thing that people talked about in 1997, and so Myers kind of brought that up and brought that back. Yeah, uh, you never would have thought this would be a huge hit before it opened well that's the thing it was it was a a sleeper hit i mean i think it wound up making like 40 50 million uh over the you know over like two months and it was it was obviously it was never number one but it was one of those movies that just kind of stuck around and people like you know that movie's actually kind of funny and it's real and it just kept going and some of the and then uh you know some of the catchphrases some of the lines kind of you started hearing people saying it and then uh, of course when it hit uh you know VHS when it hit home video was that was the explosion because it was such a huge renter that I mean they literally you know two summers later you know it becomes this big budget sequel that they give a prime date in the middle of June you know for the you know for the sequel and Madonna does the soundtrack Lindsay Kravitz does the soundtrack but you know that first one and the sequel is good it's funny also but it's that first one that really kicked it off and. It's still the first one's still a it's still a funny movie. What is the second one? Is the second one Goldmember or was that a third one? No, no that's the third one. Yeah. The third one. Second one is The Spy Who Shagged Me. Okay, is Tom Cruise with, with in Heather, the opening of that one? That's Goldmember. The, oh, okay. the second one is um, Heather Graham. Okay. Um, right. Heather Graham. It's the it's the girl. And um, yeah, I mean they're all fun. They've all been funny movies. Uh, but that first one is kind of the one where it's just it's you know just kind of throwing everything at the wall. And a lot of it's really sticking. Yeah, and, and spoof movies aren't, you know, they're mostly misses, spoof movies, that whole yeah. genre. Because they seem so disposable and 
you get the joke right. after the first five minutes. There's nowhere to go. Right. And the Doctor Evil. I mean, that became you know that was indelible character. And the sequels when we get Mini Me and Fat Bastard, you know, and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, so that first one. I mean, I hear they, you know, Myers keeps threatening and might, you know, do one more reboot or whatever. Uh, don't know if that'll happen. Who knows? I'm sure if they do, they'll market it to where it's a big hit. Um, well, it's got to be first, one of the top five comedies of all time, box office wise. Uh, uh, well, the, yeah, the the, the uh, third one, yeah. Um, the, yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I mean, um, but that first one, you know, like I said, it was, that was like the real sleeper hit of the early summer, and uh, you know, just kind of, you know, nice surprise that don't really uh, saw coming. Okay, Adam, anything to say about Ace? Uh, well, you know, I remember uh, I saw Austin Powers when it came out and uh, liked it. Gen- generally Ace, liked I, it. I was thinking Ace Ventura. I'm sorry, Austin Powers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't remember. I remember it doing okay business, but I remember that really it, it caught on in the uh, culture by repeat viewings on cable and video because this was, oh, in the infancy of DVD, I think DVDs uh, hit the market about oh four or five that later that summer, uh, August of '97 is when DVDs had their national rollout, which is hard to believe. No, and so this was one of the first uh, DVD titles. Uh, yeah, it, did, it did really well for New Line. Yes, I think it was it New did. Line. It very much, and so I think that's why you know we, we it, it didn't really light up. I mean, it did okay, but it didn't really. You know, light up the sky in terms of box office uh, at the, but uh, you know it paved the way for the huge successes of the second and third ones. Uh, I gen- generally liked it, as I said when I saw it originally, but I don't think it quite holds up. <laughs> nor do the other ones. Uh, you can kind of see how he will take a joke and just kind of uh, beat it to death for the next twenty minutes. Uh, you know, it's funny the first time, and then it's not so funny the twentieth time or whatever. <laughs> Uh, having said that, there are some some humorous moments that do hold up. Uh, I just think it's hit and miss, like a lot of his stuff. And uh, don't hate it, don't love it, but um, you know it, uh, it 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 definitely earned its place in the in the uh, the culture, as you say. Yeah. Okay, our next movie. I think we can all get behind. I'm sorry, I haven't had dinner yet, so I'm eating sushi. <laughs> are there usually carrots in sushi? I, I, when I get it, it usually has them. But uh, oh, okay, so this this is yeah. normal, the shredded carrot. Thing. Yeah, it's, I was yeah. like, did they did the, were they missing an ingredient and they just replaced it with shredded carrots? <laughs> All right, breakdown, another great surprise sleeper. That uh, you know, I do remember watching that at an advanced screening and uh, being shocked at just how efficient and effective it was, and it, it was. A great feeling of elation walking out of that, like you've discovered something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jonathan Mastow coming out of nowhere and a really lean, efficient piece of uh, uh, action filmmaking. I mean, obviously it's a, uh, you know, 90s update on um, Spielberg's Duel, in a way, Duel and Vanishing and all those, uh, but it's done real well. I will say, and I, I like that movie a lot, I will say the... Um, the first half is uh, probably better than the second half, where 
it's all about the paranoia and no one will believe Kurt Russell and he's kind of being driven mad. You know, that last act, which is still good, but, you know, basically when he finds out the motive and that it's just, you know, or kidnapping and money and all that, and it's not, and it kind of, the, the, the mystery of it kind of, you know, the sip, you know, drains out of it a little, it kind of becomes just a little bit uh, routine, but uh, J.T. Wallace, I mean, actually one of his great villain roles, you know, that, Red Rock West, and he gets evil throughout that whole movie. He's just great. Kurt Russell's good. And um, I like it. Yeah, I guess like some of the, I, I love the scene um, uh, where he goes into the bank trying to get money, and he's trying to talk to the, the, the uh, one of the bank uh, employees, and he's telling him, they got surveillance. They're watching us. And the the bank teller just doesn't know what he's talking about. He's comes off like some paranoia. And that at the time, it kind of played into the, you know, at the time, you know, X-Files was the rake, and we are really getting into, like, paranoid thrillers, and I was really kind of seeping in, and so Breakdown was kind of playing off of that at the time. And so, uh, yeah, and so Mostow, you know, he really keeps it lean, like, I was only like, three, four characters throughout the whole movie. Uh, and then from this, he gets U571, which is a great uh, audio experience, great sound action movie, and then he gets Terminator 3, Rise of the Machine. Which, um, the problems with that are kind of uh, casting, but the, some of the action scenes in Rise of the, Rise of the Machine are really, really good that he handles really, really well. Particularly the one with the crane chase. Uh, it's just you know, you know, script-wise, it's just not good. But you know, he's kind of fallen on hard times. I, I, he kind of, I thought he would have been like a good, um, had a, a better run, like an like an Andy Davis or someone, but. He's kind of falling lean times. Yeah, but I would agree. Breakdown's good. But also, also with breakdown, you get the feeling of there's a old-fashioned quality to it. Like you can imagine yeah. this being a, a noir made into a noir or something similar in the 40s or some 50s or something. Mm-hmm. It's a very practical action film. You know, it's not uh, not very high. Yeah, what's what's very- the guy from Double Indemnity? Um, Fred McMurray? McMurray? Yeah, Fred McMurray loses his wife. I can see that, Big Bade. <laughs> you know, 40 years before it came out. Yeah. Where did you go, baby? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I like Breakdown a lot, actually, and I, I actually think it holds up all the way to the end. Uh, uh, I will say this about it. It's very reminiscent of a 1973 television film called Dying Room Only with Cloris Leachman and Dabney Coleman. And it's, uh, it's, it's a very similar setup. It, now the, the, uh, the resolution is different, but, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of similarities to that television film, uh, penned by Richard Matheson. I will, uh, right. throw that in there for I whatever remember, it's worth. Uh, I remember breakdown to one. I remember uh, Ebert had a very unique criticism. He he thought the movie was a little cruel. Usually action movies, they usually give you an excuse for the good guy to kill the bad guy. Like maybe he's, you know, he's going to shoot you or something, so you're justified in shooting him. Uh, and he objected to Breakdown because literally uh, J.T. Walsh is helpless. He's alive, but he's helpless, and they just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, decide to, you know, let's just kill him. You know, they don't, they don't do anything. And it's not like J.T. Wallace was going to, like, you know, grab his gun and, like, maybe get one last shot off, and that would justify killing him. No, they actually just 
decide to kill him flat out. And I remember Ebert objecting to that kind of a, a cold-bloodedness of the oh. ending. But I remember the audience, really, the audience really didn't care when I saw it. They cared. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the audience is, loves cold-blooded. Yeah. I just love the – it makes me also love ruthless people. Because I just I just like the idea of a loved one being kidnapped and telling them, go ahead, keep her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's, Good premise. That's brilliant. Good premise. All right. So are there any other movies on this day that you guys want to talk about? Bro- uh, here, here are the titles. Broken English, Commandments, Irma Vep. Is that they're – rem- they've remade that into a series, haven't they? Right. Truth, um, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico – I will I will talk about the concert real quick. Um, I I find that is a guilty pleasure for me. It is clearly a movie that is in the backwash fallout of Tarantino, um, but it has a really good cat. It's it's Kiefer Sutherland's only directorial effort to date, uh, and it has Kiefer Sutherland, has Vincent Gallo, has Kim Dickens, uh, Kevin Pollack, Martin Sheen, uh, Rod Steiger, uh, John C. Mc. Ginley, uh, Michael T. Williamson, uh, so all-star kind of, uh, you know, macho cast. Kiefer Sutherland's really good as the bad guy, and it's a basically it's a it's a it's, a, it's done in the style of a '70s kidnap uh, road movie. They they do a drug deal. They 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 double cross a drug dealer, take the steal the uh, drugs and money, and they're gonna they're gonna sell it to a big drug dealer. For one final score and go live in Mexico. Uh, the, God, two the, kidnapped road movies on the same day. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't go well. Uh, so they kidnap Kevin Pollock and his wife because uh, they have an RV, so they can hide in there uh, and drive around in the back roads uh, and trying to get to New Mexico and try to do this deal. One of them is an undercover uh, agent. Uh, so like I said, it's a lot of little Reservoir Dogs, little, like I said, it's Freebie and the Bean, little 70s road action, uh, but it's done efficient, it's done efficiently. Uh, Gallo's really good. Gallo, you know, say what you want about Vincent Gallo, but there was, a, there was a time there when he was, a, you know, a really solid, you know, indie actor. He could do action, he could do drama, he could do comedy. He's really good, has a good uh, soundtrack. And uh, like I said, it's a guilty pleasure. It's, it's it's a Tarantino knockoff uh, inspired by those movies, but it's one of I, I think one of the the uh, better ones. Yeah. Uh, so I so I do like I just rewatched it like two months ago, so I I, I liked it. It holds up. And the other movie you mentioned, Broken English, is a really good movie. People don't know that one. Um, NC17. It's about um, uh, kind of a Romeo Romeo and Juliet story. Uh, uh, but set against the backdrop of Croatians and Serbians, uh, it's really, really good, really, really intense. So I'll, 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 I'll stick up for that one also. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Okay. Next. May 9th. Uh, a big dud. Father's Day. Was this? Right. Was this? Uh, who directed this? Was it Ramis or somebody else? I think. Uh, Reitman. I think that's Reitman, isn't it? Yeah, that's Reitman, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Uh, Robin and Williams a, and Billy uh, Crystal. And it's a remake of a French comedy, if I'm not uh, a Gerard Depardieu comedy, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I think so. Um, if 
from the 80s, from like the early 80s. They remade it's um I didn't uh I only saw I think I saw it on when it came to HBO. It just the trailer was never funny. Um and it's one of those deals where I'm sure on paper they thought, oh, Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, that'll be good. But the problem is, you, for comedies like this to work, you do need a straight man for to be one of, one of the people to be straight men, to be the straight man, and one one to be the comic, you know, foil. And frankly, you have two comic foils battling it out. You don't have a straight man. I mean, Billy Crystal is supposedly the straight man, but he's just as improv prone as Robin Williams. Um, so it just doesn't uh, yeah. work. I remember. I remember they were on. The, I remember the publicity tour where you know they would be doing all the interviews, and the interviews would be exhausting because you know they would just do their thing for 15 minutes at every thing. Yeah. And it's like you know what? I've seen the movie. This is probably what the movie is for 100 minutes. Well, so, and you know, and uh, honestly, their Carson appearance together is better than the movie. <laughs> it yeah. really is because so, I've I've sure. seen that more recently. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure they greenlit it. Like, and, I'm, and I'm sure when they remake these French comedies, they're every studio exec, well, it could be the next three men and a baby. And, um, you know, and it just, you know, it just doesn't work. Huh. Well, yeah. And, and a cameo by Mel Gibson as like a tatted, pierced guy, like given tattoos or something. Mm-hmm. Is that true? I don't even remember that. Um, I don't remember that. I mean, if that's true, I mean... But, okay. Yeah, he's like, do you want to tat sugar tits? And that that's his big cameo. So, it's just, I mean, like I said, it was, and, it, and I think the audience could tell, because, I mean, the movie flopped. It just, you know, with that star power, you know, you just, nothing about it clicked. Yeah, was this uh, Reitman's first film after Dave? Because Dave was pretty good and pretty pretty big success. I think that, I don't think he did anything yeah. between. Yeah, he might have done some producing. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, he had produced. Yeah, because he had produced. Yeah, he had produced um, he'd had success earlier in the year because he produced Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but so, no, uh, no directing. Yeah, I was just wondering right. if he had done any. Uh, yeah, I couldn't remember. All right, Adam. Next movie. Are you? I'm almost done with my sushi, so these sound, yes. these sound effects will come to a close soon. Then I'll be on to my second course. <laughs> uh, where do you fall on the fifth element? Well, I haven't seen it since it uh, came out in 97 when I was a projectionist. And I I have to say, I don't remember a whole lot about the plot of it, except that I remember my reaction being good. And I remember you know, the visuals being pretty, pretty stunning. Uh, you know, uh, even for 1997, they, they looked... Um, it was a visually stunning film, not you know, not perfect, but I remember enjoying it fairly well. Um, you know, probably one of the better Bruce Willis films of that uh, era, I would say, from what I recall. I do need to revisit this uh, though, but um, yeah, I think overall it was it was pretty good, and it was. I remember we had a lot of repeat business, yeah, a lot of people people lining up to see it. So uh, I never yeah, like I never liked it. I just um, I like I like some of the visuals, even though, you know, that crazy traffic in the sky, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do we ever see a car wreck like we see car wrecks on, <laughs> on the ground when That's people true. are driving That's 10 true. miles an hour in traffic? But 
people are just driving like madmen up in the sky and that's uh but you know you don't watch this movie because it it adheres to credibility mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I was always a, a fifth element uh defender uh love the i love the um air car chase mila jovovich is a lot of fun the costumes are i mean i i i think they dropped the ball because i think if they had tried a little harder they could have easily gotten at least a costume nomination yeah. for that movie because it deserves that much yeah it did and maybe for the and for the visual effects uh, like like all Luke Besson movies, except for La Femme Nikita, like but like every single one of them except for that one, he has way too much story in his movies. He he has too much story, too much plot. And so whenever I go to a Luke Besson movie, I know that he's going to have too much plot. And so there's too much. There's a lot of there's like probably one and a half stories in Fifth Element than needs to be, uh, but. Then he has something in there that's so original that you kind of just like, after a while you just kind of forget the plot threads. And so you're just looking at, you know, kind of like uh, just the set pieces and some of the, just the main character thrust. So Bruce, and basically you're, all you're doing is caring about is Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich and trying to survive. And Gary Oldman, outlandish. I, I like Gary Oldman more here than I do in his later movie this summer that, was a bigger hit. I think he's better here than in that one that we'll talk about later. And um, this was kind of the big um, Chris Tucker moment. He'd done Money Talks the previous summer, and so he was on people's radar. Then he comes out and he kind of steals the movie here. I mean, he's kind of a love it or hate it character. I love it. He's clearly channeling uh, Prince uh, to some degree, and he's having a lot of fun doing it. And so between this and then, like, Jackie Brown later in the year, who was kind of like Chris Tucker's coming I guess out. that's a way of saying it, because I, I do remember the only thing that interested me were the visuals, and that wasn't invested in the story at all. Unlike U571, which you say as a movie is a great audio experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and, U5, and I actually think U571 is a terrific action movie. Uh, just, I think it's a terrific action movie. I think it's criminally underrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, Nowhere, Twin Town, Underworld, Sprung, Carla's Song. Anything in there we want to talk about? I'll, I'll take Carla's Song. That's a that's a really good movie. Uh, Ken Loach, the British director, who's you know he makes a lot of movies about the working class, and that's a that's a beautiful little uh, romance set against the Contra War in Nicaragua, and uh, didn't. Uh, you know, just kind of hard to find even at the time of its release. I think it actually was released in 1996. But uh, anyway, uh, Scott Glenn's in this, and um, you know, it's just a it's just a sweet little movie uh, that I would uh, definitely vouch for if you like uh, Ken Loach and what he does. And I do, so I'll I'll vouch for that one. Uh, Twin Town. It's not a good movie. It's the interesting footnote of that is it's um. Uh, I believe it has a character that's a peripheral character from Train Spotting. It's based on, I think, an Irvin Welsh book. Hmm. Uh, so it's kind of in the Train Spotting universe, but it's like has one third of that movie's like ferocious energy and originality. So it's not obviously not that good, but it's just a footnote for that. And Sprung was a real disappointment for me because it was it had a rusty Cundiff. I think starred and I think he directed that and he was a director I was really liking. He had done the rap, the hip hop spoof fear of a black hat, 
which I which I love, and he had done the um, horror anthology Tales from the Hood, which is underrated. So I was really following him, and then that was just it was a it was like a a rom com, but it's just awful. Hmm. Yeah, I remember it being pretty bad. May sixteenth, Love, Valor, Compassion. I, I saw that. This was based on. Uh, was this based on stage play? I think it was. Wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I saw that at the time, and it was uh, really good. And a lot, a lot of critics liked it at the time. Um, I think they were trying to. They were hoping it would become like one of those summer sleeper British hits, maybe full Monty-ish. It didn't um, quite connect like that. Um, there was a couple of those British movies that we're going to see throughout this summer that. Uh, they thought could, they, I'm sure people thought we were going to be this year's Full Monty until Full Monty came out uh, but uh, yeah Love, Valor, Compassion yeah no uh, I know I saw it in theaters I know I liked it but funny enough I have not seen it since in 25 years so I don't remember yeah. much of it Terrence McNally play and screenplay right. screenplay adaptation Jason Alexander's right. in it um, Justin Kirk an early right. performance by Justin Kirk and John Glover. Mm-hmm. That's right. John Glover was the highlight. And Jason Alexander was was pretty good because um, the director kind of kept him in check. He wasn't uh, doing his George Costanza shtick. Um, so, yeah. Okay. One of my favorite movies of this summer came out uh, that day as well, which is Night Falls in Manhattan, the Sidney Lumet movie. Oh, and yeah, one of the great latter effort Lumet films I think even though I love Garcia in it Garcia is such a um, especially when he gets a kind of part like this he's such a beautiful compassionate actor and that really and and a man of conviction and all of those qualities come into play in his performance in this movie and then you have James Gandolfini and you have early Early yeah, Gandolfini. Early Gandolfini. But he 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 popped up and uh, he worked with Lumet multiple times. Right. He, he actually has one of the worst line readings in the Lumet movie, which is <laughs> which is in Gloria, when Sharon uh, when Sharon, uh, Sharon Stone sees him in the garage and Gandolfini says, "You're dead meat, Gloria, dead meat." <laughs> anyway, but and Ian Holm. So I. You know, but when you dissect it, I don't quite buy Ian Holm and Andy Garcia's father and son. But uh, the but and and the real performance in this movie is Ron Liebman, who right. he looks like he's ready to eat the camera. I mean, he is on fire as I think he's what is he the district attorney or? Right, right. He's the district. I believe attorney. so. And uh, if I remember correctly, there were a few critics, a couple. Who at that time when they saw the movie, they were like, you know, uh, Oscar voted you to take a look at this, if nothing else, for Ron Liebman, yeah. supporting actor at the end of the year. And um, just, it got lost in the, um, the shuffle. Also, has a very good restraint performance by Richard Dreyfus. Yeah. As the uh, liberal crusading uh, uh, lawyer. Uh, as far as, the, I remember there were some critics who dismissed the movie out of hand because of the whole Ian Holm, Andy Garcia casting thing they're like you know what don't buy it don't like the movie and i always thought that was kind of lazy and yeah if i'm not mistaken lumet actually he added a line of dialogue to explain mm-hmm. uh how their father and son right i can't, I can't even remember the line but he threw in a line of dialogue to 
But emotion, emotionally, you believe it. I mean, on the strength of those two yeah. performances. I mean, if it, it feels emotionally true. No, Nightfall, I mean, there's that, it's basically a quartet of the New York movies. Like every 10 years uh, or so, Lumet kind of does these uh, dispatches from uh, New York on well, how it's, things it's, are. Uh, it's a rightful heir to Prince of the City. Yeah. I mean, it's just but, a, I mean, it, it's it just a different tier of law enforcement. It goes in there with Serpico and, of course, uh, the best of these four movies. I mean, I love Nightfall, man. my favorite is uh, Q&A. Mm-hmm. 90, which is, uh, you know, and you kind of like, you know, if, you know, you kind of want that Criterion box set of the Lamette New York crime, uh, you know, saga. Yes. And, uh, Armand Law White would call it the worst release of the year. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Nightfall, no, night, and uh, he, was, he was on a roll because um, uh, just like six months earlier was uh, Critical Care. Mm-hmm. Uh, the his uh his hospital movie, which was really good, with a great Albert Brooks performance. Yep. Yeah, yeah I like him. Uh, I mean, obviously, I like him. He's one of our great American filmmakers. But uh, Night Falls in Manhattan, if you haven't seen it, it's worth uh, checking out. It's a great, intelligent awesome adult movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, second Jungle Book or The Van? The Van was good. Uh, the Van, um. That was part of the that Roddy Doyle trilogy, um, uh, following that uh, the Irish family started with the commitments, um, and then um, the Snapper was '93, and the Van was the uh, the third one, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, no, Van's good, and, and done by three different, I believe, Irish British directors. I think Alan Parker did one, Stephen Freer did another one. I forget who did the van, um, but yeah, no vans, 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 a lot of fun. Uh, okay, Adam, do you have anything to say about anything we've? I didn't see the van, and it's been a long time since I saw Night Falls on Manhattan. I don't remember a whole lot about it. Watch it again. again. I need to. I Damn need it. to. I just made a note. Uh, so yeah, should have done done a little prep work for this because I, I didn't realize there were a few of these. I never do any prep work for these summer funny. shows. I like to get the, in the dark. I'm, I'm wondering what they were thinking by releasing that. I mean, were they thinking counter programming or, or you know, adult well, counter? Yeah, several of these, several mm-hmm. of these as we go through were like, man, they had a. It seemed like they had a different conception of summer, but uh, you know, I'm sure they're all looking for that sleeper hit. Uh, that yeah. goes against the grain, you know. Oh yeah. And they're like, "Night Falls in Manhattan." We got to get a six-day jump on the Lost World, which is our next movie. <laughs> <laughs> Jurassic Park Two: yeah. The Lost World. Uh, I saw it twice in theaters. I am a defender of this. Uh, I, I, with a lot of, with a couple of qualifiers, clearly it's not as good as the first one. You know, it is a sequel. Uh, Spielberg did this sequel because he didn't like what happened to Jaws when he didn't have any quality control over those movies. So he was going to do the sequel, and he produced a third one, and he's produced all these. Um, I think everyone would agree that uh, compared to all the Jurassic World movies, Lost World is infinitely uh, more uh, competently made summer blockbuster. Um is it on the level of the first one? Is it on the level of something like Jaws or Temple of Doom? 
no. Uh, but you kind of have to grade the movie for what it is. And as a sequel to Jurassic World, uh, it's very good. There are some action set pieces that are, you know, Spielberg, you know, shoots the works uh, for, you know, on them. And uh, there's some big laughs uh, involving the dinosaur. There's, there's a great bit where two dinosaurs grab a guy and they kind of split him apart like a piece of taffy. <laughs> That's just a great visual gag that Spielberg could do so well. Um, you know, and, the other, you know, and there's a lot of stuff you were, you know, Pete Possibly's good as this dinosaur hunter. Uh, I remember, you know, for uh, me and, and my friend, we were kind of intrigued because we'd all been super fans of Swingers. And so now Vince Vaughn, who is a rising star, you know, this was going to be his first big studio movie. We're all seeing, can he deliver? Can he do a decent role? And, and uh, he didn't, like, embarrass himself. He's good. And they were smart. Uh, Jeff Goldblum's usually the best character from the Jurassic Park movie, so they focused on him. And a little progressive at the time, they gave him an African-American daughter, and they don't mention anything about it. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's all that. And um, that sequence involving the trailer hanging over the cliff and some of the, that sequence, that is just a terrific action set piece. Well, nobody uh, directs action like Steven Spielberg. Nobody directs yeah. movement like Steven Spielberg. Yeah. That's why I was so excited that he was finally doing a musical. But, um, but uh, you know, this is... This is really post Schindler Spielberg, and there, there is a difference. So it really does feel like to me that he's going backwards. And literally, when you do a sequel, you're going back to the well. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you've, once you've, you know, he already climbed the mountain in family films. And yeah. once, once you're on a different track, it does feel like going backwards. Mm-hmm. I've not been a big fan of most of his output since. Uh... That's post Schindler. I have to admit, there's there's a lot of misses there, and uh, this one I liked when I saw it initially. Uh, I don't know if uh, you know, I just I enjoyed it a, a lot. But then subsequent viewings have uh, changed my opinion on it. I, I don't think it quite holds up. Uh, there's some good stuff. I, I always enjoy, of course, seeing you know uh, dinosaurs stomping around in civilization as they do they get, when they come to the mainland. Here in the, in the climax of the film, I enjoy all that stuff. And like you said, there's some great action set pieces uh, in the film. But, um, you know, it's it's a mixed bag. But it's probably of all the Jurassic sequels, it's the best. I will say that. Cause of the after sequels, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the, after this, they really just go from bad to worse, in my uh, opinion. This is, the, uh, this is the first of his, um, what I call his, uh, his, uh, three in 18 months things that he does. He does mm-hmm. three movies in 18 months. And this is the first of this. Well, that's not lo- that's not true, is it? Because Jurassic came out the same year as Schindler, didn't it? Yeah, but that's just two movies. Uh, and then there was nothing. You know, there was nothing after that. I'm talking three movies in 18 months. Because it's, it's Lost World, then at the end of the end uh, Christmas we get Amistad, and then the following June we get Saving Private Ryan. Wow. So yep. in eighteen, so like literally in a year, it's not even eighteen months. It's in a year. We get three in a year. And this is the first of that where he does that. Uh, you know, another one is AI Minority Report. Catch me if you can. Uh, Terminal Real, War of the Worlds Munich, and then uh, War Horse 
uh, Tintin Lincoln. You know, he does these, you know, three in, you know, three in a year. Well, so, I mean, so, he, 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 he is hit and miss for a certain part of his career, but I mean, and don't get me wrong, his escapist stuff, Jaws and Temple of Doom are among my favorite movies, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, but, but I, mean, I but I also I also think that something like Schindler, uh, most of Private Ryan and Amistad and Minority Report is as right. good as anything else he's directed. You know, and Munich, and Munich, and um, well, Munich. I said Munich, didn't I? Because I really that's the right. one I love most of all. Uh, Munich. Yeah, I like that. And, um, and uh, I've liked the, these last couple of ones. I've been a defender of the Post um, and Ready Player One. And to me, I mean, I'm most excited for his, his this new film that's coming out. Oh, and West Side Story. I mean, West Side Story, I think, uh, is amazing. Um, an amazing yeah. filmmaking in there. Okay, Addicted to Love. This is from, if I remember correctly, director Griffin Dunn, Meg Ryan, and Matthew Broderick star. Yeah, this is part of her uh, rom-com streak. And uh, she's, it's, actually, it's actually pretty good. Griffin, Griffin Dunn's an underrated director. Underrated director, underrated. He's underrated in everything. Underrated actor, underrated director. Uh, so he, he actually, um, you know, he, he brings a little something a little different to the Meg Ryan kind of rom com formula. He, he kind of has a little uh, gentler touch. It's not, you know, it's not as uh, heavy-handed as like the Nora Ephron style, or as little as, or even like I guess a couple of summers earlier was uh, was it French Kiss, and uh, the, the thing with French Kiss. Uh, Kevin Klein kind of steals that movie. Um, so this is kind of where she's more front and center. The problem with Addicted to Love is that Matthew Broderick, um, Matthew Broderick's never been good in rom-coms, really. Uh, he's done a couple of these, you know, uh, The Night We Never Met or whatever, uh, now this one, and he, he always feels a little uh, uncomfortable doing it. I don't know why they put him in here. He's more... He's better and he's different in where he's either kind of playing kind of a. He's generally like, yep. an uncomfortable actor. I mean, outside of his youth, uh, yeah. you know, and that's why it's so impossible to view him as Ferris Bueller when you see him, you know, in person or much else because he comes across as a real fuddy-duddy with the bow ties <laughs> and everything. He's good when he, um, you know, his best stuff as an adult has been when he they put him as a kind of a mild manner. And uh, on the surface, a uh, you know, uh, a mild mannered guy, but who's really kind of a a jerk. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of like election, or you can count on me. Yeah. You know, where you know they really kind of use that to their. Uh, yeah, they play off on his, you know, tightwadish shiftness. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, and the only rom com that he's good in, and I guess going back to the usefulness, is um, uh, the, the romantic scenes in Biloxi Blues. With uh, Penelope Ann Miller, uh, he, he's nice in those, and uh, he, he's had a gentle touch in those. And of course, there's the scenes with the monkey in Project X. Uh, <laughs> he's, That's great. He's, he's real cute and adorable with that in those scenes. Um, but yeah, and so yeah, so when he's doing with it, and he's better with like effects or like when, like I said, when he's playing uptight guys. So he's better with like he's he's actually good in Inspector Gadget. It's not a good movie, but he's actually good as Inspector Gadget. You know. Um, so yeah. The following week, the last week of May, May 30th, Gone Fishing, Danny Glover, Joe Pesci, most notable for an onset death. And, uh, I don't know how else, how much else we need to say about that movie. 
Well, and then this Joe Pesci last movie for like I don't know fifteen until like uh, you know what, that dude rank movie whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't this the last thing he does? Is gone fishing? I think it's the last thing he does. So he worked pretty intensely once he got stardom from Goodfellas. He worked pretty intensely up until this point, right? Right. I mean, he just he had a better movie. It's not a good movie, but he's good in it. The uh, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, uh, like two months earlier. Mm-hmm. He's a lot of fun in that. Um, and so yeah, I think this was his last last movie. So, yeah. Rough Magic. Mm-hmm. Till there was you, which is is that an Eric Stoltz romance or something? What's the one with Eric Stoltz and Annabella Sciorra? Is that the one? Could be. Till there was I you. Mr. Jealous. Thought that was Mr. Jealousy. Oh, could be. Hang on. Till yeah. there was you. I that didn't be, see that one. That might be Gene Triplehorn. Something tells me this is another... Okay, it's Lakeshore Entertainment, starring... Oof. Oh, man, I was way off. Starring... Oh, God, they're in order of appearance. I can tell... the uh, Dylan... Not Dylan McDermott. What's Who's the other guy? Dermot Maroney. All right, it's Dylan McDermott. And uh, Gene Triplehorn and Sarah Jessica yeah. Parker. Yes, I mean... Do we need to say anything more about it? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I, I don't think so. I don't know. Romantic comedies were so disposable back then. Trial and Error. Is that Jeff uh, Daniels? Yeah, or... and Ken Elfman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, one of those kind of shockingly, surprisingly good like courtroom comedy romantic. Well, it's Jonathan Jonathan Lynn who scored big with yeah. my, you know, my and Home Nine Yards and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and uh, uh, Nuns on the Run. I can forget Nuns on the Run. And uh, distinguished gentleman. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was, once again, you know, I they thought maybe a little kind of programming. Kind of when I remember when I saw it, I remember thinking this has more of a uh, early fall, mid spring vibe. Uh, but you know, you know, you know, Ken Elfman was uh, in the middle of Dharma and Greg, so clearly they were trying to like, okay, well, we got a rom com for her, courtroom rom com, and Jeff Daniels, you know, you could. Jeff Daniels is one of those actors. You can plug him into anything. And he's was Jenna Elfman in this? I don't think she was. I think it was Charlize Theron. No, Char- Charlize hadn't... Uh, is it? Yeah. Sure? Is, is Charlize as, as the other woman? Yeah. And Michael Richards. Was, and Rip Torn. Right. Yeah. Well, Michael Richards... Well, that's why I was doomed. Uh, but, you know, um, you know, Jeff Daniels is one of those guys. You put him Michael in Richards actually got top billing. His name appears first on the poster, and then Jeff Daniels. Hmm. He gives you a perfect. Jeff Daniels is always going to give you a pro performance. He's always going to deliver the goods, and uh, no, it's good. I guess this was the month of the Seinfeld cast with uh, Jason Alexander and Love, Valor, and Compassion, and yeah, Trial and Error with uh, Michael Richards. Yeah, cash in. <laughs> uh, wasn't '97 Devil's Advocate year? So yep. okay, so Charlize was breaking, breaking that year. Well, she she had just uh, she, I mean, because she's the best thing in Two Days in the Valley. Mm-hmm. So, so everyone was like, oh, who's that? And so, yeah. but you know, she's in Trial and Error. You know, they can't all be hits. You, the career is yeah. Trial and Error. Yep. Uh, and- June six. Uh, wow, Bliss. Who's the, what is the actor's name? Craig something, right? The Craig Sheffer. I like Blitz. Nightbreed, okay. Yeah, and uh, River Runs Through It. 
and the prog- program. I didn't see Bliss. I can't can't comment on that one. I haven't seen Bliss in Excellent. so long. Very smart <laughs> film. Very good. Very smart film. About it's an erotic a, movie, right? Yeah, but uh, Terrence Stamp. Um, I mean, it's, they're a young couple, but they're having intimacy issues, so they go to him, and he's kind of a specialist. And um, you know, it, it, on you know, I'm sure if you read the tagline, you read the synopsis, you think it's kind of this softcore movie, but it's actually very uh, intelligent and very smart okay. about uh, about the subject matter. And um, so Salman Rushdie was or not Salman Rushdie. Zalman King wasn't anywhere near this movie, were they? No, no. Okay, no, was he? <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, very, it's actually very, very Salman well Rushdie. done. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jesus. My mind's not working today. Oh, my goodness. And, the, and the, the girl in the movie, she was obviously from um, Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 Machin Amick or... Uh, no, no, no. Um, Cher- uh, Cheryl Lee? Oh, Sherilyn? Yeah, Finn. I, believe I didn't know that Cheryl was Cheryl and Finn. I thought that was. Oh no, it's Cheryl Lee from Twin Peaks. Yeah, Laura yeah, Palmer. Lee. Laura Palmer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and she's really good. I mean, obviously she's a she's great very, actress. It's a shame she didn't get more opportunity she's very, because she's a great uh, actress. She's great in this. I mean, obviously she's very sexy in this. Uh, but I mean, it's a very it's a terrific performance by her. So, yeah. Buddy, but, hey buddy. Rene Russo and a gorilla <laughs> in the 1920s. Now, supposedly this is based on a true story. I have no idea what part is based on a true story, but that's what it would say at the top, based on a true story. A 1920s uh, socialite who tries to raise a gorilla as part of her family. Right, and so they play it straight, and which is just, you know, deadly with this material, because, okay, yes, it was a true story, but... Clearly, 70 years later, we can see that this woman was mentally disturbed, and they never acknowledge that, so they play it straight. And so we in the audience, we cannot get beyond the fact that a woman is raising a gorilla in her apartment, and no one is saying anything. And so it's just a weird – I remember a couple of critics brought up um, the Cassavetes movie, Love Streams, where there's that scene where Gina Rowland's – rolls up to the house and has bought out the pet store. You know, it has that kind of craziness to it. You know, there's this whole, there's this whole thing. I, mean, I guess it goes on now, but there was this whole thing in the nineties where actors or actresses, they would do these family movies because they had kids. Right. So they wanted to do a movie for their kid. You know, a classic example is um, Sissy Spacek doing trading mom, you know, and my guess is Renee Russo like, well, I'll do this for my kids. And, you know, which is a noble thing. Got no problem with that. But you know, you know, I'm sure there are smart kids movies you can do, you know, without doing this. Mm. Was this was this a directorial debut for Carolyn Thompson, who wrote uh, Edward Scissorhands? I think it was, right? Uh, oh. I I don't remember. Like I, like I said, the movie is so bad. I I, I yeah. I, I blocked it. All I know is they yeah. should have, they should have had Polly Shore in there just to deliver that line. Hey, buddy. <laughs> well, moving along. Any movie during this era would have benefited from more Polly Shore. We all know that. Uh, <laughs> also on that day, an incredibly popular movie, one of the summer's top. Uh, well, it's definitely top ten. Uh, grocers, Con Air. 
Speaking of uh, speaking of ridiculous, but I think it's a movie that knows it's ridiculous. I think it's got a sense yeah. of humor about itself. It is. I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, I Adam. Like I well, I saw this opening weekend and had very little expectations because the trailers didn't do it really uh, a lot of justice, and I thought, ah, but it's you know it was a weekend, nothing else going on. Uh, okay, let's check. I had a lot of fun with this movie, and I was uh, oh my my ex wife and I at the time we used to go to the movies about every weekend, and we saw it, and uh, really really dug it, really dug it. I, I laughed a lot. <laughs> And uh, that cast is incredible. Um, I don't know. There's is this one of the ones that they they've uh, there's been rumors that um, Tarantino did some polish on or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But yeah. anyway, uh, but it's just a lot of fun. And and like I said, great cast and um, some up and comers. Dave Chappelle in there. Uh, and just you know, I don't know. Just I, I thought it was a blast. And uh, and have rewatched it in recent years. Still enjoy it. Uh, introduced my son to it. He likes it as well. So uh, I'm sure Tarantino is the one that wrote that whole put down the bunny thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and, uh, I mean the real, I mean the, the screenplay is uh, by uh, Scott Rosenberg, who was yes. a pretty good screenwriter at the time. He because uh, he was uh, people taking notice that he had written the uh, things to do things to do in Denver when you're dead script, which was a good you know a fun. Mm-hmm. You know, one of those scripts designed to like catch your attention, and so he did this. And then there was that period where, I mean, obviously this is Nicolas Cage, where he's starting to, you know, he trying to be an action star. He just he did The Rock the previous summer, so he had this, and then another movie, and I think the following week. And then, I mean, even Cusack, uh, this was a uh, Cusack trying to like up his game in kind of the big studio movies. He had done City Hall, and then Gross Point mm-hmm. Blank earlier in the summer, earlier in the spring, and now. Now he's in the action uh, realm. Uh, it's a movie that is a trashy B action movie done at obviously grade A level, but it knows it's trashy B action movie. It knows it's not art. Uh, unfortunately, recently, um, I think uh, Mr. Aaron Rodgers uh, mistook it for a work of art uh, when he showed up to training camp dressed as the character. Uh, so, uh, I, I don't think he realized how ridiculous he looked, but yeah, yeah. So Connor as what Nicholas Cage in the movie, he dressed yes, up. Yes, he. Yes, he, he. He had the boots, he had the jeans, and he had the tank top, and he even did the put the bunny in the box oh. line. And so, yeah, I mean, he looked ridiculous. I mean, I think he thought he was being cool and unironic. Um, which tells me he thinks Con Air is like should be taken seriously, which is sad. I don't think I don't even think Nicholas Cage took Con Air seriously. I think he's just having fun. Yeah. Well, a great cast and um, and a hit song. How do I live without you? Song. That oh yeah, hugely. Leon Rhymes. Now Leon Rhymes, but. The Leon Rimes version was not the hit, right? It was the cover of the Trisha Trisha Yearwood, yeah. Oh, was it? Right. Oh, okay. That was the that was the hit that was on mm-hmm. the radio oh. ubiquitously. But yeah. Uh so the pillow book and toll booth. Well, oh. pillow book is Peter Greenaway. And um Peter Greenaway and Ewan McGregor's in that and I never saw it, I know. Uh, like in, I believe it was in 17, and you know, kind of like in his cook thief mode. 
June 13th, Hercules. I don't remember anything about Hercules. I don't even remember who, who voiced this. Uh, well, the star of that is a, it's, it's kind of based. So Disney, they, they kind of, they pick and they kind of carry pick mythology with the, the Hercules stuff. And, uh, like, and they, they do that and they shape it into kind of an Aladdin kind of, uh, version of mythology. And instead of the genie, the, uh, the star is Hades, voiced by James Woods. Uh, and he kind of steals the movie. Uh, and the, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the Greek chorus is done in a in the form of a black gospel choir, so it kind of gives a little more. Uh, the songs have a little more pep, a little more energy, um, and um, they, they they I forget the guy. They went to a British animator. I forget the guy's name, Sklar or something or other like that. And so the look of the film is a little different. Has a little more of these sharp angles uh, to the to the features, and so it's a different look. Was a hit, made a hundred million. That was always a big thing. Had to make a hundred million at the time. Um, it's not as good as the previous summer's Disney movie, which is Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is one of their all-time great animated movies. Uh, but this was more, uh, you know, this was more uh, off the cuff, like like Aladdin was. And uh, James Woods. I mean, say what you want about James Woods now. Uh, I mean, he kind of he does as good as Robin Williams does with his improving. Um, and uh, he fits real well as Hades. So, so yeah, so Gamewood's the highlight. Huh. Speed 2, Cruise Control, also on that date, June 13th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, this is the one where Keanu Reeves got all the credit, and he was, I mean, but he was very diplomatic. He's like, look, I wish him well, but, you know, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, he, he did the right move uh, doing it. Now the thing is, Speed Two. If if it was titled anything other than Speed Two Cruise Control, it's it's not that bad of an action movie. Do you it's really really think that? Do you really believe that that it, that, <laughs> that people would watch that movie even if it was titled something else and and not think it was absolute junk? <laughs> I I I kind of do, um, because there's some really good action. There's there's some good action sequences in that movie. Yonda Bont's not a bad director. He's not a bad director of action. So the problem is not the uh, the action set piece. The problem is, you know, you got a movie that's titled Speed Two Cruise Control, and so everyone's like, okay, there's not, there's no speeding in this, you know. Well, that's so, the action of the movie. How can you be right. a good action director if the whole premise of your action is absent from the, your movie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. think he, I think he can make a good action movie. Yeah. I don't, well, well, I don't like think I said, he's impervious no, if, to if making shit movies. Not named, if this movie was not named Speed 2. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's the argument. If you weren't expecting Speed, if you weren't going in expecting... If, if this was a standalone... Right, right, right. Right. If this was a standalone movie, if a standalone action, summer action movie, um, I don't think people would hate it as much as they do. And... I don't know, man. I, I don't think any part of that movie is any good. I, I have to agree with you. <laughs> the, the, the Not a Dafoe, fan. Willem Dafoe and the leeches and all that kind of stuff. And... <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I I just thought it was bad, and uh, my my uh, subsequent viewings. Uh, I don't think I've sat all the way. Th- 
I don't think I've set, set through the whole movie uh, since then, but uh, maybe just bits and pieces. I feel the same way. It's like, yeah, this is June thirteenth. Uh, also on that day, actually, a uh, good under uh, you know uh, in the independent movie underground uh, success. Ulysses Gold, the kind of the return of um, Peter Fonda. Fonda, yeah. Good stuff. That was one of the best films of that year. Yeah, I would agree. That's good. That was on my top ten list, I think, or runners-up at least. And it's a B movie, right? Like he he's a beekeeper? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm a big Victor Nunez uh, fan. He's a regional filmmaker. Well, he's a, uh, from your neck of the woods, he's a Flor- Floridian regional filmmaker. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, that, he's uh, still got Ruby something to say. That's amazing. <laughs> Ruby, in Par- Ruby in Paradise. Uh, Gal Youngin is another, uh, his first movie from like 1981. Uh, so yeah. Um, okay. No, uh, no Yuli's Gold is a good, is a good little movie. Um, let's go to June 20th. Man, th- this was the two, um, lackluster sequels. Like, and not just lackluster, but movies that you were lampooned. Yes. Um, Batman and Robin, June 20th. And yep. Speed 2 and, uh, is the other one that was lampooned. Right. But Batman yes. and Robin's the second one. But Batman and Robin, I mean, say what you will, it still managed to creep to 100 million. Yeah. I mean, it crossed 100 million. Months, uh, marketing will get you a lot. I mean, the first 10 minutes, uh, you know, you're kind of like, okay, this is going to be loud and, you know, loud and fast. I'll go with this. But then it just starts piling on the um, double entendres. And then it, it has way too much, once again, problem, way too much story. Because bring in Batgirl and you got two villains, Poison Ivy and Mr. Freeze. And you got Batman and Robin and all this other stuff. And so there's way too much stuff going on. Um, I actually do think Schwarzenegger is good in the movie uh, for, that, for that role, for that type of role. And I think if they had taken the tone of the movie from his performance, um, which is more in keeping with the TV series, the original the Batman TV series, they might have had a fun uh, movie. But they, you're you're they so charitable. Their, you're like the UNICEF mm-hmm. of movie critics. They 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 hedge their bets because you got him doing his thing, then you got Clooney and and O'Donnell kind of just doing this bantering that's not very witty. Then you got this S and M kind of visual stuff going on, and then you got all this overblown action that's just you know sound and fury. So you got like three four tones going on at once. Um, You've got the, when, the the head bobbing of George Clooney. This was a period of his career where, you know, he'd walk and his head would bob like he was a bobblehead. And you've got the charmless uh, presence of Chris O'Donnell. uh, (laughs) Not to mention the nipples on the bat suit. Yeah, that was the big thing. Do you believe, did you believe Schumacher when he said that he wanted to go darker, that he wanted to do what Christopher Nolan ultimately did, but he was vetoed? I don't know. I don't know if I'm buying that. I don't think he wanted... I don't think he wanted to do what Batman and Robin did, was, because um, Batman Forever, you know, despite you know, say what you will about it, um, it it's more, it, it is a little more in keeping with Burton 
right. than people ever think about. So I wouldn't, it, it, you know, do I think Schumacher wanted to do Nolan? I, I doubt that, but I'm sure he didn't want to do the the candy colored kitty film that he wanted Batman to do the the eight, eight millimeter version of Batman and Robin. Right. <laughs> now, what is it? The other interesting thing, and it, you know, and and this is the thing of these last the last Star Wars trilogy. Um, there is something to say say about waiting another year, you know, right. because the Batman right. movies were three years apart. The, this one came two years after Batman Forever, and I do believe that extra year of you know breathing room, they might have like been a little more. Uh, well, there might have been a little. Uh, well, I mean, so you can understand why studios would be skittish about re reimagining a hit franchise, you know, mm-hmm. from the ground up, like Nolan did. But you know, <laughs> Schumacher being uh, kind of forced to do, do a public mea culpa and apologizing for making Batman and Robin, which he did several times, and that whole thing—it's the geek community, you know, grow up. You know, it's a it's yeah, a job. I mean, uh, Noth- nothing was really taken away from your life because Schumacher flubbed Batman and Robin. <laughs> and I'll say something really that's true. I'll say something really controversial too. I prefer it to many of the DC films that we've seen in the last ten years. Mm. So I, I will say that, and uh, I'll go down I mean, for that one. Yeah, at least you're not yeah, sleeping. I mean, at least you're watching it with your mouth agape, like you're like, what? yeah, that's true. what's happening. <laughs> All right. yeah. Also on that day, my best friend's wedding, huge. Now this is uh, when we talked about how tricky it was, and with romantic comedy, and so many of them are disposable, aka a lot of those Miramax romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. My best friend's wedding is the opposite. Still has legs, still has power and 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 popularity. Popular. I'm not a I'm not a ride or die fan of this one. I I get the popularity. Um, I think Rupert Everett is terrific. I would I would have liked to have seen him get nominated. I think it's uh, one of Dermot Moroney's better performances. Who's an actor who's always kind of left me a little cold. I think he's really good in this actually. Cameron Diaz is terrific. Um, I don't like the big scene that everyone loves, the sing along scene. Aww. I find it cringe inducing. I find it cringe inducing. Those scenes are hard to pull off in movies. The the, the impromptu sing along. Um, when they're done right, you you know you you just love them. I think you it's know, done. Almost. You know, I'm not saying I love my best friend's wedding. I think it's done perfectly in this, because the whole point of that scene is to reflect how true his love is for her and how that affects Julia Roberts seeing that, and that comes through glowingly in that scene. Now, here, okay, now here's the thing. My my sister was a fan of this when it first came out. Love the movie. She recently rewatched it like a couple of years ago, and she couldn't get past 30 minutes. And she's of the mind, and, and a lot of people have said that this movie's not aged well, and that the Julia Roberts character, would, at least her actions in the first yes. act, are so bad right. that this movie has not aged well. Uh, See, I think they, I, I think that, I think they knew she was she was borderline stalker when they made it. I think she was a very questionable uh, character. So you're stuck on a desert island, and you get two movies from 1997, <laughs> and it's uh, Speed 2 or My Best Friend's Wedding. Which one's it going to be? Oh, it'll Quick. be My Best Friend's Wedding. <laughs> I'm a, I mean, as far as the rom-com canon goes, 
uh, at least of this era, I'm more of a uh, Harry Met Sally, Pretty Woman uh, booster than, um, uh, what do you call it, than Best Friends Wedding. Well, it's, you know, Harry Met Sally, yes. Even though, believe it or not, I've only seen that once, the day it opened. Uh, And what was the other one? Pretty Woman. Yeah. by, by, By degrees, Pretty Woman's a better movie, I think. I will say that I will take Best Friends Wedding over um, Notting Hill and Runaway Bride, which was the one-two punch two years later. Would you take it over Runaway Betsy's Wedding? wedding? That's what I want to know. <laughs> no, Father of the Bride is better than Betsy's Wedding. Uh, well, that's, you just introduced a different movie. Yeah. All right. Uh, do we have anything to say about Underground or Head Above Water? I or know. The Last Time I Committed Suicide? Uh, well... Uh, Underground, I believe that's the one that uh, won the it won um, the Palm Door can in '96. No kidding. Or '97. Or '97. I can't remember. Uh, it was a big winner. Um, so that's all I can say. I haven't seen it. That's all I can say about that one. Um, what was the other one? Uh, oh, I guess head it, above water. I guess, I guess it had a delayed release. Yeah. Right. 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 Uh, head above water. I believe that was a. Is that Harvey Keitel? I believe. I believe that's Harvey Keitel. Uh, I'm mistaken. And then the last time I committed suicide, interesting movie. It's kind of one of those little forgotten indies. Uh, one of those like trying to tell you the the truth about famous characters before they became famous. In this case, it's uh, Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac, and it's like um, what is it? Uh, Keanu Reeves and Thomas Jane. Um, mm. uh, uh, it's an interesting movie. Okay, yeah, yeah. Head, head above head above water was Keitel, Cameron Diaz, and Craig right. Sheffer. Yes, yes. It's, it's a Jim those, Wilson like, movie. Jim Wilson the, uh, directed it, the same guy that wrote Dances with Wolves. Yes, yes that's right. Um, yeah, I remember that. It's you know New York, L.A. release. Um, but yeah, last time I came to it, one of those. You know, Keanu Reeves. He's had his whole career. He's always done these little interesting indie movies to offset the uh, the big budget movies that he will do. And uh, last time I came into it, not a perfect movie, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, okay. it's worth taking a look at. June 27th, the last week of that month, we have among the most ridiculous action movies of this era, but it works, which is Face Off. John Woo, yep. Nick Cage, oh. Travolta. Yeah, a lot of that, fun. That, actually, that, that made my top ten that year. Um it's just it's a sci-fi action movie. It, who it does a better job of ca- who does a better job of capturing the other actor in their performance? Uh, Travolta. I mean, he, I mean, he has more to work with. Travolta doing Nick Cage. He has more to work with. But Cage is actually good uh, tampering down and playing it straight, as it were, when he's Travolta and not you know. See, I think I think Cage. Cage is the, has the only moment in that movie, and it's before Travolta and every and all of his henchmen, they break into Cage's lair, and he's talking to Gina Gershon, and she's coming on to him, and he's trying to reason with her. There was a moment in Cage's performance where his behaviorisms were exactly like Travolta, and I, I, never, I never felt that in the opposite in Travolta's performance. Yeah, uh, like I said, I, I it was, this to me this epitomized the best uh, or that peak of the John Woo aesthetic. 
the, right. the slow motion, the two guns, the doves, all that stuff that were the hallmark of John Woo stuff that, you know, just made it different. Because, by, you know, you know, action movies were kind of a dime a dozen at that point. You know why he puts John doves in there, right? In his, in his movies? <laughs> I think I think this is correct because he's a, I mean I think he said this because he's a Christian, and so he puts right. they're they're a symbol of Christianity or I don't know what they are but mm. it has to do with his relig- well, religion religious belief. Well, he's always be- he'd always believed that you know uh, people are both good and bad have good and bad sides and this was like kind of the wow the ultimate what a newsflash. <laughs> well, this was the ultimate. Uh, <laughs> A revelatory. Yeah. So it's okay if you if you shoot someone a hundred times as long as as long as you put a dove in there. That's that's your absolution. <laughs> that's your. And, uh, yeah. Joan Allen's well. great. Gershon's great. Uh, Alexander Navolo, a lot of fun as the brother. Uh, no, I mean it's just it's just over the top. That's the, that's the first uh, post Lolita role for Dominic Swain, right? As Travolta's uh, daughter, uh, Cage's uh, Travolta's daughter. It had Lolita had not come out. So I was going to say that was later in the year, I believe. Oh, okay. No, it, well, it, no, it came out in '98. I think they had done. Oh, Dominic. that's right. Yeah. But so yeah. Yeah, it was held up for about a year, I believe, or yeah. something. Right. July first, big weekend. Used to always be the big weekend of the year, July first, Fourth of July weekend. And couldn't get bigger than Men in Black. Actually, you really couldn't, because I'm looking at the worldwide gross of Men in Black compared to everything else, and it's it's double what a lot of these others are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I went, I went, uh, and, and you know, the, the the hype machine was all about Will Smith. He finished the TV show. Now he's gonna become the movie star. This is his follow up to Independence Day. But anyone who saw Men in Black, the real star if you really enjoyed it was Tommy Lee Jones with his uh, deadpan comic oh, performance. Yeah. He just kinda of steals that whole movie, Rip Torn. And it's it's all you know, once again it's not the uh it's not the plot like Fifth Element. No one even knows the plot. It's all the stuff in the side. It's all the <laughs> Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Because it reminded me of what you said about Father's Day. I was like, could you imagine Tommy Lee Jones acting across from Robin Williams? But there, <laughs> but but there is an example of that in the Batman thing. I was getting ready with, to say yeah, with him, Jim with, Carrey. Yeah, and and Jim Carrey loves to tell a story. It's a great story of like before the movie even started, he ran into Tommy Lee Jones in a restaurant, and they were signed up to do the movie together. And Tommy Lee Jones just hated Jim Carrey. He gave him like this godfather death blow hug, like he's hugging and kissing Fredo. And he says, I cannot tolerate your buffoonery. And, <laughs> and they absolutely <laughs> did, did not get along. And it was all Tommy Lee Jones. It's kind of craggy. Just could not tolerate Jim Carrey. Mm. But he tolerated Will Smith. I guess he had a good time. He came back for how many more? Two more? Uh, yeah, two more. Yeah. Three more. Yeah, no, two more, yeah. They didn't do international. So, yeah. And actually, Men in Black 3 is actually really good. It's better than it has any right to be, yeah. Yeah, Men in Black 2 is not any good, but Men in Black 3 is really good. Jack Brolin having a ton of fun in that movie. Uh, But, yeah, Men in Black, a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I think the critical line was it was the movie Mars Attacks wanted to be. Now, I happen to like Mars Attacks, but 
uh, Men in Black, very good. Uh, the, the, the real kind of acting star in that is Vincent D'Onofrio. Right. But he does oh, yeah. Oh, physical, yeah. Physical performance. Sugar water. Sugar yeah. water. Yeah. No, he's great. That's a great physical performance in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so also on that weekend, Out to Sea... Is this one of the better Math Al Lemon later efforts, or I yeah. can't, I can't, yeah. I heard that it was. Yeah. It, it's better than the Grumpy Old Men movie, than Odd Couple Two. This was is easily the best because it has the best cast. It's not only Math Al Lemon, but it has Diane Cannon, Olivia De Havilland, and um, uh, Brett Spiner as the comic villain. So and um, Elaine Stritch, mm. great role, is a small, great comic role. So it's just it, the, the the writing's a little deeper. Uh, the comic writing a little deeper, a little deeper in the characters, and the casting just a little, a little more thoughtful. But yeah, out CD the best of that bunch. Okay, and I guess I kind of took them for granted at that point because they seemed like they were yeah. putting out a movie every summer, and I remember thinking, ah, you know, this, it's how so long gr- is this going to go? But you know, in retrospect, it's so great that they did. That they, I know, you know. That's what I was going to say, because they'd both be dead in less than five years. Yeah, that they became this dynamic believe. blockbuster duo in a sea of dinosaurs and right. That's true. <laughs> all this stuff. It's pretty great. That's true. And they were yeah, literal dinosaurs, and they were... Okay. Uh, Wild America was also on that day. Ugh. Okay. It's, it's a Jonathan Taylor Thomas vehicle. Yeah, I remember the reviews were wretched. So okay, this, this one I watched again last week. It's one of the great documentaries. Uh, Spike Lee, Four Little Girls, opened July 9th. Fantastic movie, yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Powerful. Got an Oscar nomination for that. Should have won. Uh, As it should have. Uh, well, the one that won was not a slouch. Uh, Long Walk Home, that's also a great uh, documentary. So, uh, At least it didn't go to like some like you know second-rate documentary. So. There's so many moments of four little girls, though. There's the moment that I'll always remember, which is, you know, when one of the girls left the home to go to church and the mother said, you know, your your slip is showing or whatever. Pull your dress down. And she was haunted her whole life because those were the last words she said to her daughter. Mm-hmm. Well, and then that amazing sequence when he um, God, interviews George Wallace. Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I just I just watched it again last week and cried and cried, but that mm. that Wallace thing is pretty incredible. Just to mm. Spike Lee is sitting across from George Wallace and Wallace's mm-hmm. uh, servant assistant, trotting, whatever, trotting out his best friend. Yeah, he's my best uh, friend. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Uh, Highly recommended. Powerful. So there, there are three or four movies so far that if people out there haven't seen, you know, some are we think disposable, but there are three, three or four movies that you have to see if you haven't seen them yet. Four uh, little girls. Four little girls is one of them. July eleventh, Contact. Now this is his follow up to what? Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Yes. Big big fan of this one. Um, We're talking about Zemeckis. Yeah, the Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, I saw this at a pre-release screening. I saw it, and uh, you know, I knew it was based on the the book by uh, Carl Sagan. I think he died 
before it was completed the previous year. And, you know, big, I was a big Carl Sagan fan and, um, you know, just didn't know, you know what to expect here. But I, I really was kind of blown away, uh, especially beginning with the opening shot where you, it goes back and back and back and you can see the universe. And I thought, uh, yeah, we're, we're in capable hands here. And, uh, I, you know, it's, I will say that it's not perfect. You know, there's, there's, um, probably some, some things that you could nitpick. But I don't know, emotionally, it really uh, touched a nerve with me. And I rewatched it just a couple of weeks ago because it turned 25. And uh, I was at that screening with my father who passed away last uh, last year. And, you know, because there's a whole thing about her losing her father and uh, reconnecting and longing to reconnect with him and yeah. all that. And so that it, it resonates for me now in a different way than it did back then, because that was turned out to be the last film we ever saw together in a theater. My dad just kind of stopped going to the movies after that and uh looking back on that it was a you know and, and like i said it uh, was very emotionally moving then but even more so now in a different way and i, I don't know i i think it holds up and uh, the effects are pretty impressive uh still yeah i think so uh, it's, i uh i always always liked it okay it is one of my favorites it is one of my favorite sylvestri scores i'll say that oh yes score great i love the scene where that, that great sequence where uh, they get the signal and they're running around and trying to keep an eye on the signal that they get from out of space. And yeah. it's a great sequence. Mm-hmm. Foster, it's a great star. Foster had done a movie in three years uh, since Nell. I think it's one of her top five performances. I and, agree, like yeah. close, and like Close Encounters, which is the movie it's most uh, akin to, it's a beautiful meditation on uh uh faith and science and where those two things inter- right. interconnect intersect mm-hmm. um there's that i mean mcconaughey he's on a roll here he's coming off of time to kill and he's smart here to do a supporting role he has that great scene because she's agnostic and um and uh, he has that there's that great moment where he he goes uh uh do you did you love your father he says of course i did and he goes can you he goes prove it uh to illustrate the, the illustrate faith. Yeah. Uh, it's just ter- terrific. No, it's a it's a it's a it's a dominant theme in that movie, and mm-hmm. it uh, you know for a mainstream movie it it, t- it crashes right right into it. It doesn't pussyfoot around and with yes, that theme. Adam is right. You probably could nitpick. I mean, to me when I when I rewatch it, I can I understand the casting because you got a two and a half hour movie, so you can't really deal with like character development and some of the s- supporting characters. So when you cast James Woods as the chief of staff and being the bureaucratic uh, wall who's going to be the the skeptic, you know, you kind of get everything when you see James Woods walk on. But it's so kind of obvious. You kind of, like, wish maybe they'd done a little something different. But, you know, like I said, that is nitpicking. All the other stuff is amazing, um, you know. Really yeah, and that is my favorite scene in the movie, where she's a little girl trying to contact her father on the mm-hmm. on the radio, and then my that my favorite music cue starts from the from the Sylvester score, in that scene. Uh, okay, shall we dance? This was the original before Richard Geary did it, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yes. And a sleeper sleeper. For, this was kind of the sleeper foreign language hit of the summer. Shall we dance? Yeah. Uh, it's a really good movie. What is it, Argentinian, or what, what country is it from? 
No, um, I think it's Japan. Really? Why did I always I think it was Latin America? Maybe I'm wrong. I, I could be wrong. I don't know. Oh, I'm looking at a 1930. I looked up Shall We Dance and a 1937 movie came up. That's not what we're talking about. That's a good one. That's a good one, too. <laughs> Shall We Dance? It looks like uh, it's it's uh, Japanese. You're absolutely right. It is. Yeah. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, I watched the whole movie and I was like, why are these people speaking Japanese? This is a Spanish movie. <laughs> okay. Wait, did you see the sequel? Shall we dance? Free control. Uh, shooting, po- shooting porn. Is that a documentary? I guess uh, somehow I missed that. Uh, a simple wish. A simple wish. What is now, that? Is that the Steve that Martin? Martin Steve Martin, yeah. No, no, Martin, no, Martin Short. Is it? Okay. It's Martin Short. Uh, Michael Ritchie? Yeah. Yeah. Is that his last movie? Oh, it probably killed him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's one of, you know, you think, you know, I'm, I'm sure he thought he was making a nice, whimsical kid family film, and he just kind of, something gets lost in the translation and the execution. Wow. You know, it's one, it's one of those, you know, poor Martin Short, someone that talented, and he always, you know, he comes in these movies like, yeah. you know, where, where he's he's easily the best thing in the movie, but something goes wrong. Yeah, I love Martin Short, uh, but you're right. Not you know he it would be great if he had his midnight run, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so that's a simple wish. Martin Short in a Michael Ritchie film. Uh, George of the Jungle, July sixteenth. This is uh, a surprise blockbuster hit made a hundred million dollars i don't think anyone yeah you know, is I'm this sure brendan frazier summer yeah, yeah okay. brendan yeah. Frazier. he's if on a roll anyone in the beginning of the summer said hey what do you think can be one of the big hits in the summer no one was going to say oh well georgia the jungle but wound up making a hundred million dollars it's very funny it has a smart funny script one of the highlights gag running gag he has a elephant pet elephant that thinks it's a dog and I, despite how that sounds, you have to see it. And every time the dog, the, the elephant, comes in the frame, it, it, I remember it just got big laughs in the theater. And so it's just one of those movies that should not work. Does should not work. There's no way it would have worked. Somehow they pulled it off, and it's just kind of one of those magic of movies. Like you, hmm. you don't know what you get till you put it together. Okay. I didn't see it. I skipped I, it. So. Yeah, I skipped that one too. Uh, July 18th. You guys have anything to say about Kiss Me Guido, Mrs. Brown, Nothing to Lose, which I think is Martin Lawrence and Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Well, o- yeah. I mean, Operation Condor or The Swan Princess. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. Of, well, okay, Nothing to Lose. I mean, it was obviously an attempt at a buddy action comedy because it's. Martin Lawrence, Tim Robbins, I think Giancarlo Esposito is one of the bad guys. It's from one. It's from the director of the second Ace Ventura movie, I believe. So you know they thought they had something there. It, there's some funny lines in there. There's some funny stuff. Robbins and Lawrence. Robbins and this is, a, this is a good again going back to Father's Day. Robbins and Lawrence work better than Crystal and Williams because Tim Robbins is the straight man to Martin Lawrence, and they they keep that dynamic. And so that there is some funny stuff, but it's just. It's not original. Uh, so, yeah, so it's kind of disappointing. 
Operation Condor, Jackie Chan was on a roll. Hmm. Rumble, Rumble in the Bronx had come out a year before, so this was one of his. This is a good one. You know, you know Jackie Chan. So you know what you get when you go into Jackie Chan movie. But obviously, the big movie that week is Mrs. Brown, Oscar nomination for Judy Dench, one of her best performances. It's a beautiful movie. Uh, uh, Billy Connolly is equally. He should have been nominated. Also, he's just as good. Um, yeah, oh, I, I I love Mrs. Brown. I saw that twice in theaters. Almost made my top ten that year. Uh, Judy, that is Judy, and then it's one of those deals. She was nominated, she didn't win, and then I guess you could say they gave it, they made it up to her the following year when they gave her the Shakespeare in Love supporting acting Oscar. Mm-hmm. But Mrs. Brown I mean, is a great movie, very much in the uh, remains of the day vein, which is another great movie. Okay. The next week, uh, uh, Star Maps, uh, mm. Carlos comes to. America from Mexico with dreams of becoming a movie star in Beverly Hills. I believe that's Miguel Arteta. Yep. Director. And, um, uh, I never, I didn't see Starman. I, I liked his later movies like, um, LIE. And, and he did, he does some, he did some great TV directing. I think he did some homelands and stuff. July 25th. Adam. Right. Air Force One. Right. Yeah. I figured you were going there. Yeah, it's good. Wolfgang Peterson. Um, you know, uh, Harrison Ford, he was on a roll at that time, too. You know, as the president of the United States gets to be an action hero. So, <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a good, solid action film. Uh, Audiences loved it. it. I mean, I, I remember standing at the, in the back of the... Um, uh-huh. In the theater, hearing just reaction, and the audiences just ate it up. And uh, I remember I had one friend who saw it. And he said, you know, I didn't think Gary Oldman was a bad guy. Like, I understood his motivations. And I'm like, well, isn't that a strength? That's right. Yeah, it's a good point. Interesting tidbit about this was that Randy Newman originally did a score for this film, and it was uh, discarded. And I That's believe an it was odd, my, odd choice of composer. Uh, right. I've always, and it's out there. You can get the uh, the Randy Newman Air Force One score is out there if you do. Go, I guess they thought he would bring the the natural kind of Americana. I stuff guess. To it. But I've always thought that was odd, and when I found that out, and and even saw that they had issued that, uh, I thought, well, that's bizarre that uh, that they would even consider Randy Newman for scoring Air Force One. But anyway, just, I will say just the, a little trivia. I mean, the set is great. Glenn Close is a vice president is a nice touch mm-hmm. uh everybody wants to see harrison ford kick ass and he did it well as usual but mm-hmm. the man you could tell they were under the gun with those effects especially that, <laughs> oh, yeah. especially that plane crash i mean that looked like something somebody drew in a etch-a-sketch <laughs> <laughs> trying to make well, that randy, july 25th I, release date yeah i remember that randy newman uh score that title song uh, i love air force one uh i was i'm uh i i got a break from the pack here not a fan of air force one i remember when i saw it i mean i was hyped for it i was a big peterson fan at the time Mm -hmm. line of fire is one of the best action movies of the 90s that is highly repeatable viewing great script for in the line of fire uh i'm a big fan of outbreak also another repeatable movie i really like that one so i was really hyped for this and i went in and I just, I kept waiting for it to kick into another gear. 
mm-hmm. and it just it just never kicks into that 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 that, that, that stratosphere that you expect with this storyline. Harris, I mean, and Harrison Ford, the casting, you're like, okay, that's great. Harrison Ford's the president, but he's so stolid, Jack Ryan, and like, you know, unlike, you know, you, you go back to the line of fire with Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood has some, you know, someone who is like known for his taciturn, man of few words. He has humor yeah. and like vulnerability. And, that, and so, like, I'm, I was waiting for some of those colors. No, I mean, yeah, Harris, Harrison Ford is, he, he, he plays it very earnestly, you know, yeah. and unlike, as, unlike, as though he's doing Shakespeare, because, you know, he his performance when his family's endangered. I mean, he's fully invested. It's just he, it's not. Yeah. A, he's, yeah. Even the even the, with these movies, usually even the villain has a colorful kind of character to play. But yeah. but the, there's very earnest high stakes involved. Yeah, I mean they, they take it so seriously. There's no yeah, you're humor. right. You're right. And um, get, like I said, Gary Oldman's more fun in Fifth Element. I do like. I mean, and so I like kind of the cheesiness moments when they do lean into that. Like they have that 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 aerial combat, and so you know they're done with the dogfight, and the the one guy he goes, Mr. President, let me look to see the damage, and he's like, Mr. President, you're you're really hurt up here. If you don't mind, I'll stick by you. And, uh, you know, until we figure it out. And he goes, Mr. President, good job. And he salutes him. I, that's the key. It's like, okay, I want more of that key. Like, yeah. dude, do more of that. Do more of that. You know, William H. Macy, you know, they're fighting over the last, you know, backpack. And, you know, once again, Harrison Ford, stolid, humorless president. He's like, we all go. And finally, William H. Macy's like, sir, you need to go now. You know, forget us. Like, okay, that's, that's the stuff I like, you know. Yeah, I don't know enough about Wolfgang Peterson as a person to know whether or not that was his choice or not, but I could imagine Harrison Ford wanting to play it very seriously because it's a difficult balancing act to to raise the stakes and yet be, Mm -hmm. you know, dismissive kind of comedy on the side. Well, I don't want to give the wrong impression that I think it's a a, a, a bona fide classic. I mean, I, I saw it once. And I had no desire to ever see it again, so that should tell you something. But I thought it was solid at the time. Yeah. So. It was a movie that delivered what people wanted to see. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alive and Kicking, Box of Moonlight, or and Good Burger. You have a Good Burger story, but yeah, you told we, it last week. Yeah, we told week, it last week, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Box of Moonlight um, is noteworthy because I think that was the first time we uh, people took note of uh, Sam Rockwell. Tom DeKillo, and that was the first time. Uh, Tom DeKillo had done a couple of really good indie movies, Johnny Swade and um, Living in Oblivion, which I really, really like, and then Box of Moonlight with John Turturro and Sam Rockwell. And Sam Rockwell, he's good in this, and I did take notice of him, but I must admit it wasn't until Three Billboards that he finally made another impression on Sam Rockwell is one of those actors who, yes, I see him in the credits, and yes, I see him in the movies, like, oh, great, Sam Rockwell, I know he's going to deliver, you know, he'll be solid. But he rarely leaves a lasting impression on me as an actor. A lot of people, a lot of people really got him on the Green Mile, even though that wasn't the most attract right. appealing of characters. Right, right. And then, mm-hmm. uh, but then Three Billboards, I think, really kind of brought out his multiple colors yeah, as an yeah, actor. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and so and this this was another example. 
July 30th, 187. Was this the Kevin Reynolds post-Waterworld thing? or? That's the one. Yeah. Samuel Sam L. Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Sam, Jackson. Sam Jackson's fine in it, but it's just so uh, misguided as a like this cautionary tale about the, the war zones of inner city schools. And I knew, and, and, and I remember watching it and kind of being, trying not to laugh throughout the movie. And then we get, and then we we get the missing piece of the puzzle, and the movie ends, and um, we get a title card that says this movie was written by a teacher. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that that explains everything. Why it's so bad? Clearly this, <laughs> clearly this teacher just hated teaching like right. black and Latino black and Latino kids. He hated it, and this is his like payback to all the black kids he had to tolerate yeah, yeah but oh. he was also the supervising producer of love connection oh, was he? the tv well, series i yeah. could tell you that i didn't I know tell you everything else i could tell you everything yeah else. well yeah that's another that's another missing piece 25 years later that that explains the rest of it i mean this is a movie that climaxes where sam jackson the teacher trying to save the kids they do a battle royale because they've seen the deer hunter, uh, Russian roulette scene. Uh, so, I mean, that's the kind of movie we're dealing with. I never want to hear you say climax of Samuel L. Jackson in the same sentence again. Please. <laughs> July 31st, Spawn. Aren't they remaking this? Are they, oh, what's surprising? Uh, Spawn is one of those, I mean, uh, it truly is an artifact of 1997. Uh-huh. It was a big hit at the time, and it was one of those early kind of berserk displays of CGI effects that kind of, you know, galvanized people, couldn't believe what they were seeing. Uh, its lasting legacy, if it has one, is the uh, gonzo performance of John Leguizamo uh-huh. as the clown. Uh, it is an amazing performance in the middle of all that swirling action. Um, you know, Sound and Fury. He manages actually to create a character amidst, amidst all the noise. So that is something. Yeah, they're remaking it with Jamie Foxx. Yeah, I thought they were. That'll be a definite improvement. Well, this is clearly a movie that was greenlit in the wake of the surprise hit of The Crow a couple of years earlier. But mm-hmm. The Crow is an infinitely better movie. At least yeah. the first one is. Now, does Liguizamo play his nationality in in this movie? Because uh, I'd hate to think that <laughs> well, an artist will color well, outside he, the lines. He is a, he is a, well, I mean, he is a real-life clown, so there you go. All right. August 1st, Air... Airbud. God, I these movies... These shows, man. The stuff that we have to talk about. <laughs> Was it Air, the Air next Bud? one, I... Airbud. Yeah. Airbud, August 1st. Jeez. <laughs> okay. The first one, I mean... For kids' movie, the first one is like, it's not like an embarrassment. It's, yeah, yeah. When you get to the sequels, uh, it's like... They're I didn't see it. Well. So. Speaking uh, of sequels, man, it. man, last night I was like, I happened upon it on Tubi, and I said, okay, I'm going to watch all four Species movies. And I did. I did. did, did. You, well, you were glutton for punishment. Actually, the third one's better than the second one. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And who who is in, is there any actor from the first one who's in all of them? Is Matson in all of them, or anyone like make it to no. the end? No, 
Henstridge makes a brief appearance in the beginning of three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, so that's all we that's all I have to say about Airbud. <laughs> so I've watched all four next- species. <laughs> yeah, take the next one, Adam. In the Company of Men, I love that film. Uh, it was the I think directorial debut of Neil Laboot, uh, playwright, and um, it was very well reviewed. I wasn't I didn't know that much about Neil Laboot, but I followed his career quite. Uh, uh, with quite a, uh, quite a bit of interest after this film, uh, I know Siskel and Ebert. I think it made their top ten list. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Yeah, they liked it a lot. But, yeah, and I did too. Uh, it's uh, basically about uh, Aaron Eckhart is in it. I think it was the movie that maybe got him got his career uh, launched or whatever. Or certainly helped. And anyway, it's about two office workers. Two two. Uh, Man, I guess you would call it a, a portrait of toxic masculinity in the, in this day and age. But anyway, uh, these uh, they they place a bet between the two of them as to um, how quickly they can uh, uh, date and dump a hearing impaired typist that works in their office, and uh, how how uh, how much devastation that they can can um, I guess leave her leave in her life i guess you should say so um and the problem is that one of the office workers uh actually starts falling for her and starts regretting the bet that they made or whatever or the little deal whatever it is but anyway it's uh it's a pretty pretty dark film (laughs) yeah if if there's any filmmaker that the times today are totally inhospitable to it would be somebody like neil labute like if yes. if he if he made cult movies that resonated in the culture today, I mean he would be ostracized. He even has a new movie that just came out with Justin Long and Alice Eve or somebody, a horror movie. Um, but I've yeah, talked to Neil, I've, I've talked to Neil Abute and he's a very smart guy. I talked to him for half an hour about Barry Lyndon. I didn't even talk to him about his own movies. We just <laughs> talked about Barry Lyndon. And very perceptive. I mean, he's a writer. He's a smart guy. And people yeah. that accuse him of misogyny, I, um, I, uh, you know, you can argue it, but I think they missed the point of a co- in the Company Men because uh, I definitely think that that the last shot of this movie is a heartbreaker. I mean, oh, yeah. It, yeah, that last shot is great. It sure is. Um, and uh, I think Todd Salons would be followed, uh, yeah, following his, yeah, that's in the same <laughs> second school. place for a, a, another filmmaker who, who could not uh, function in these days and times. Uh, well, if he, if he'd start writing good scripts again, maybe he could. Um, but, uh, I, I loved In the Company of Men. I still do. I think it's an amazing movie. It's kind of the carnal knowledge of, of sure. the day. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I think I think the trick is uh, I, I disagree with Adam on one point that he said one of them starts falling. I think the key to the movie is that they actually both fall in love with her. I think that's the, the trick to the, the real key. I think even Eckhart falls for her, but he's so filled with loathing and self-loathing, self-hatred that he can't even allow himself to 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 admit that to himself. Um, Yes, uh, I don't. It's one of them, I've, I have asked, like, would this movie even get made today, or how to be received? It. I will say this though, and, and I love that movie, and I like uh, the movie. A couple of follow-ups. I liked Your Friends and Neighbors. I liked Nurse Betty, and the last movie I liked of his was uh, The Shape of Things. With, uh, I liked all those too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, Neil Abute is one of those one of those filmmakers, provocateurs, kind of like Lars von Trier, mm-hmm. where I think. Um, 
he said everything he ever had to say in his first first or second first or second movie and he just hasn't been able to say anything uh new in the you know 20 years since uh you know to the point you know I don't, you know same thing with Todd Solon's you know we were talking you know Welcome to Dollhouse Happiness and then there's a couple of movies but then like they say everything that they have on there in in them and then it's just they have nothing else left Well you say. could argue the the merits of his whole output but I would say that mm-hmm. there are a lot of directors particularly writer directors that that's that's totally true of that they're they're right. con- they're concerned with one theme the dynamics of one theme and their whole careers are spent exploring that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's a lot and, of, uh, I, yeah. And the thing, and so, I mean, uh, I, I, I only bring this up because I remember when, in the see, I don't, I don't think he did up. that. I, I, did he do that in that, um, Lakeview Terrace? Right. Yeah, I don't Lakeview think. Terrace. Yeah, he yeah, did. He did. Terrace. No, but he, did he, uh, he, he, he explored that theme? Yeah, yeah. He departed from his yeah. comfort zone, really. He departed. Yeah, and uh, but the thing like I mean, in Lady Terrors, I mean, because it's a PG thirteen movie, it's just still restricted. <laughs> right. Uh, but the thing is about in the company, I, the only thing I bring, the only reason I bring this up is because I love that movie. I still love that movie. It was on my top ten that year. I remember when I saw it, I was like, "Wow, this is the birth of like one of the great future filmmakers." And it's a little disheartening that, like, no, he just had a couple of movies in him. I'm grateful for the couple of great movies we got from him, but he just, it's not, uh, you know, it's it's not what it turned out to be. Probably fair. Uh, Also that day, Picture Perfect, that's the Jennifer Aniston one, right? And Paul Rudd, Mm -hmm. is Paul Rudd in that? No, that's object of my, no, which one? What? (laughs) Where am I? I can't, or, is it? I don't know. Paul Rudd, maybe it's in both of them. No, Paul Rudd is the one that was gay. And the romance. In and out. In and out. That's obvious in my fiction. Right. Picture Perfect is the Glenn Gordon Karen movie. So that's Jay Moore. Is that Jay Moore? Yes. The poor poor man's Paul Rudd. (laughs) Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Who apparently, uh, he he, he told a story where uh, he felt felt bad, he diminished because Aniston, like, didn't want him and said, like, I didn't want you for this. I wanted. Oh God! Uh, I think you wanted someone else, and so you know, he's like, "Well, it's nice to be wanted on set." I just reread some of um, Biskin's Beatty biography. Yeah. And uh, you know, I interviewed Glenn, Glenn Gordon Karen when I did the Clean and Sober anniversary show, and right. uh, and he was great. And I really want to know about that movie because nobody asks him about that movie. They always ask him about Moonlighting or Medium or whatever TV he's written. And I completely glossed over the fact that he directed Love Affair, right? Isn't that the thing? Yeah. He, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I reread that chapter, that book, and God, it sounded like an absolute nightmare <laughs> that Beatty put Clint Gordon Garrett Karen through in that movie. I'm sure it was. So he was probably yeah. thankful to be, well, I don't remember when Love Affair was. When was that, 94? It was 94. Oh, yeah. so he was like, yeah, give me picture perfect. That, that, that'll, yeah. be, that'll be a breeze. A, a palate cleanser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. You live a couple of years when you work with Beatty. You live a couple of years of your life. Oh yeah. When you work with Beatty. And all, all for not. And there's, 
you know, and Glengorn Karen is an accomplished writer-director. You know, he, he oftentimes when he supposedly was an actor for hire, Beatty would go with directors he could push around and that he could blame. Which, you know, which makes me wonder. I'm guessing Barry Levinson. I mean, obviously he was an Oscar winner, but I'm guessing Barry Levinson had enough uh, like steel in him. Right. Like, okay, you're not going to like. I'm directing this. Like, well, yeah, and it's telling that Buck, Buck Henry is credited co-directing Heaven Can Wait, because if that got bad notices, yeah. he could. I'm sure that was Beatty's thinking. He oh, could yeah. push the blame on Henry. Uh, August 6th, Def Jam's How to Be a Player. Uh, that's the name of my memoir. <laughs> How many pages is it? <laughs> it's thick, man. It's 500 pages, man. How to Be a Memoir. A Life. I didn't see it. I have to admit, it's another one that I skipped that summer. No, I mean, well, that was the thing. Uh, Def Jam, they had a couple of movies. They were trying to like do branching on this some movie that had to be a play. I forget. A what was their horror movies. movie? Uh, I don't. I Wasn't don't there like a vampire? Problem movie? with how to be a yeah. The problem with how to be a player um, is that earlier in the year, in February, we had the surprisingly funny booty call. Mm-hmm. With uh, Jamie Foxx and Tommy Davidson, which you know, you know, you, if you went into Booty Call, you're like, this is not going to be a good movie, and you came out kind of with a grin on your face, like I did not expect to laugh that much that movie. So, you know, if you if you got to see one of the, uh, one of these kind of raunchy uh, urban comedies, rom coms, uh, rent Booty Call. I'll never Fox forget my first trip to L.A. I I went to see Pacino in a play, so obviously I saw Pacino. That was a celebrity, but. It was 1999. I was like, I wonder how many celebrities we're going to see. And uh, the only one I saw was Tommy Davidson in an Armani store. And then we went to Vegas for a day, and we saw Carrot Top walk across the lobby. So I'm like, who would have guessed that the two cele- <laughs> the two celebrities were Tommy Davidson and Carrot Top? And Tommy Davidson's the more serious uh, thespian of the two. Carrot Top just looks scary, like freak, freakishly mm-hmm. roided up. Yeah. Anyway, anything? That's all I have to say about uh, Def Jam's How to Be a Player. August eighth, Roma Stun. Um, career Girls. Yeah, um, Mike Lee. This is a rare thing because you know Mike Lee takes years between movies, right? You know, you know, like three years because they're doing all those improvs and then they work on the script. But this is literally less than a year after um, Secrets and Lies. And this is minor Mike Lee, but it's still good Mike Lee. Uh, when I say minor in that, it's very it's small scale, not big themes. It's just more of a uh, small character piece of these two uh, uh, young women uh, trying to navigate uh, their, you know, you know, work, work lives. Uh, but it's good. I've never seen it. It's really good. Okay. Conspiracy theory, the Richard Donner movie with Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts, uh, with, uh, this, they were paid the $20 million. Act, for. The first act is terrific. Um, really good. The first, you know, all, you know, Mel Gibson, he's really good doing that paranoia. We only, if we only knew then what we know now, uh, but all those scenes in the cab where he's, He's muttering and going on these conspiracy theories. That's all that stuff's great. The setup is great with him and Julia Roberts. 
they have this kind of quirky kind of chemistry and then she's not a she because he saved her life so she's not afraid of him everyone else is kind of nervous around, but he's not she knows he's not dangerous so she can kind of speak to him whisper to him and keep him in line and then even the when the action started the initial action was like okay this is interesting the problem with this movie is that they they play it safe in that they they toy with the movie they toy throughout the movie that Mel Gibson's a this former assassin and that he might have killed uh Julia Roberts I think father you know did he or didn't he like he's an assassin but you know he's trying to go straight or he's trying to be a good guy or was he a bad assassin and they could have had a really dark film where he gets uh, uh, awakened or triggered to do one more hit that uh, they want him to do. Uh, but they hedge their bets and they turn him into an action hero at the end. Yeah, they're going to um, have it romantic. Right. Uh, well, well, there's a nice... There's a, I, I give, there's a little caveat because um, they can't be together at the end. He has to, you know, to, for her to be safe, he can't be with her. So that's a nice little, you know, twist so it's not totally a, a happy romantic ending um so you know so you know it's one of those deals like they could have done a, if they'd gone a little darker yeah. they could have had a really good thriller with with this uh the one highlight of this of all things a footnote is the title of the uh not title well the closing credit song is lauren hill's cover of uh can't keep my eyes off you which was a great uh r&b cover hip-hop cover of that song. Oh. I remember that was a highlight um, of the movie. That, that was a surprise. Who would have thought that but, would be you know, the lasting legacy of conspiracy theory? But this was part of Mel yeah. Gibson's star run. I mean, you know, you got... Uh, I mean, the 90s. I mean, the 90s is his peak. I mean, Bird on the Wire, um, <laughs> really? Hamlet... <laughs> I mean, Lethal Weapon 2, uh, uh, what, uh, Man Without a Face, Maverick. Uh, well, Lethal Weapon 2 Braveheart. was 89. Bird on a Wire yeah, was no, a I'm, total oh, flop. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'm, tra- I'm talking about uh, not Lethal, Lethal Weapon 3, uh, Man, Man Without a Face, Maverick, Braveheart, yeah. uh, Ransom, Conspiracy Theory. No, I mean, the, yeah, the 90s were great for him. Then it turned out... And then, and of course, don't forget Father's Day. We, just, we already mentioned Father's Day. Right. Uh, Payback, yeah. Next up is, the I think, the best movie Ron Jeremy's ever been involved in, Free Willy 3, The Rescue. Do we <laughs> have any thoughts? Not on this um, end. <laughs> I, um, the first one's the best, and this one is better than the second one. So if you got to rank them, it's 1, 3, 2. Okay. Uh, I will say this: they they keep they are consistent with the cast. You know, it's not like you know people got big and like I don't want to be in this one or you know they didn't pay them. Like no, the cast do they and good. they use the same whale each time. Uh no, um, but the third one they were really onto the animatronics. Oh come on! So they're consistent with the cast except for the lead character, the title character. Yeah, that's that's. Well, I think he got harpooned by the by the time. Yeah. August 13th, another big sleeper hit, The Full Monty. Yes. Go on to get a Best Picture nomination. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those working-class British-Irish comedies that you just, you know, we were getting all throughout the 90s. Uh, it's good. 
it's good. I mean, I, I remember I saw it and I really liked it. I, I mean, it was real charmer. It probably made my runners up on the top ten because I really, really liked it. But, I mean, I had, you know, I'm, even when I walked out, I was like, man, that's going to be a real sleeper hit. I think it's going to really do well be break out. I, I could not have predicted how much of a breakout hit it would have been. Yeah. Let alone, like, you know, you know, five years, they're going to be a Broadway musical. Was that a Miramax release or a fine line? I think it was Fox Searchlight. Okay. Fox Searchlight. You know, but now it's a Broadway musical, long-running Broadway musical. Well, yeah, it's had had an afterlife, just like Billy Elliot has. Yep. Yeah. Um, I prefer Full Monty to Billy Elliot, if we're going to... I prefer Billy Elliot. Billy Elliot's very moving to me for some reason. Uh, August 15th, Adam... The, uh, uh, one of the big stories of that that summer in terms of Stallone's transformation and uh, you know you could read all about that. Uh, De Niro's doing his version of Barney Miller. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like Hal Linden in Barney Miller. Yeah, I uh, I liked Copland when it came out. Again, not perfect, um, but solid. And the cast is pretty amazing. It was Harvey Keitel and Ray Liotta and uh, obviously still own and gosh, I can't remember who all was in it to tell you the truth. I don't have the cast list in front of me, but, uh, James Mangold directing. Um, I think this was what a second film after, um, heavy. Yeah. Heavy. The yes. Summer was heavy. Right. Yeah. That's I what think I thought. A, a much better movie. This is much better than yeah. heavy. I agree. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, Robert Patrick, uh, Ray Liotta, Keitel, De Niro, Stallone, Rappaport, uh, yeah, Rappaport. That's it. Frank Vincent, Peter Berg, Kathy Moriarty, Annabella Sciorra, uh, Janine Garofalo. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty mean, amazing. All, yeah, all star cast. I, I think it's a highly rewatchable movie. It's a good, uh, you know, it's a good film. Stallone, you know, you know, obviously Stallone is a big deal, but Stallone kind of tempering down his action hero. But I've rewatched. I, I obviously I've rewatched it several times, and it is such. It's a really beautiful restrained performance by Stallone. Mm-hmm. It's really, really good. Uh, and, Re- and Leota is terrific as kind of the wild card in the movie. Yeah, I remember uh, Leota being the being the real performance story of the movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. he got all the he got all the he got he got the hot moments where mm-hmm. he really has his he gets to kind of like you know twirl and all that. And it's just a good macho you know kind of meat and potatoes cop corrupt cop drama i mean oh god he fell out again zone lament oh uh, but he's 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 doing his version of lament but he's cross he's crossing it with a with a you know one of those 70s urban action films like report to the commissioner or across yeah. 110th street uh, and so it's just it's just really really good. I need to watch it again. My, my I, 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 I was always very lukewarm on Copland. It just struck me as the the ca- the, the cast outclassed the movie itself. But, yeah. Well, there's a case to be made yeah. for that. My favorite was the uh, spinoff, RoboCopland. <laughs> RoboCopland. <laughs> okay, I'll save that clip and see if it works years from now. <laughs> that that joke. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe it's ahead of its the ne- time. <laughs> the next one I did. <laughs> the next one I did watch last night. Believe it or not, just coincidentally, uh, I had never seen it. Event Horizon. So I saw it for the first time last night. Didn't see it when it came out, and it just came out in the 4K. 
edition. And, um, you know, it's a mixed bag. Okay. Uh, apparently they were trying to do the shining in space. Uh huh. Is essentially what they were going for. Solaris meets Shining um, yeah. meets Alien. Now, I, I remember, I mean, it has some amazing visuals and a couple of fairly good scares in it. I would um, agree. Um, but, I mean, I remember at the time, well, you know, I gave it points for trying to be different in the sci-fi realm at that time. Um, but apparently, and I, I just found it out in the last week or two because I've seen all these stories pop up, I guess it has developed this massive. It has. Following. It has, and because over the uh, over the years, I've even heard it. I, I've heard people say, you know, it's really scary. Is Event Horizon? That's a scary movie. Yeah. And I still so, haven't seen um, it. I mean, I, it does have a good, sustained sense of dread for you know long stretches, you know, apprehension. It's just when it finally starts to have its payoff, they kind of don't. Uh, the payoffs aren't as good as the the, the lead up, as, as these things go. Um, but yeah, and so and it's well. I mean, when you have a cast like this, you're gonna you know you're gonna get better performances than this material deserves. But yeah, I mean, I've been reading these reviews of the or not these, these interviews. I guess Paul W S W S Anderson's like doing like press thing on with the Blu-ray or with mm-hmm. the 4K and you know talking about how it's like had endured and mm-hmm. endured over the endeared over the this year, over it the has, years. it has, and that's a common problem with the with the lead up and the payoff thing. I mean, I think that's the, something like Sphere is the perfect example of that. Like yeah, what, and I think. Oh, go ahead. For two hours, you're like, "What the hell is going on?" And then you, and then it shows you, and you're like, "That's it." <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I was going to. Alien gonna... is probably is the rare exception where the fear matches the payoff, and the payoff, you know, is equal to the to the dread, mm-hmm. um, but you know that's the rare exception. But yeah, I mean, so. go ahead. I, I, I was just going to mention that we we would be remiss if we didn't mention that Titanic was originally supposed to be a summer release. Uh, it was uh, touted as being the the release of right. summer of '97, and it didn't you know didn't make the, uh, the the release date. And so Event Horizon was a Paramount release that was kind of sort of they were hoping to maybe fill that gap a little bit maybe i mean they knew it was nowhere near I see. titanic uh, but uh, it was and so it was a little rushed uh the post-production there was i think the original cut was two hours ten minutes and there was complaints it's too slow it's too long and so he was trying to trim it down and then they just uh, kept saying shorter 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 and then they trimmed it to 95 minutes and then there's uh uh they say there's 10 minutes of uh, stuff that apparently is lost that they huh. he wants that the they say it makes uh, some of the story points more well, clear. Have have, have, a, have Kev Cameron deep dive into the ocean and look for that missing footage. Nah, I know. Well, well, he, that, but, um, but not only that, but uh, I mean, the poster was awful. It was an awful poster. Yes, put, like, it's a bland poster. And I also yeah, speaking of that, Titanic was gonna be like a summer release. I remember um, Harrison Ford. This is what I, this is back when Harrison Ford had clout. Like no one's business. I think he called up Paramount and said, you know, I don't want Titanic to be in the way of my movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're like, don't worry, Harrison, it won't be in the way of your movie. Uh, so, I mean, I think that was all, that that actually happened. I do remember when Titanic came. Well, before it came out, I can't remember where it premiered. It premiered somewhere like the London Film Festival or something. 
And I remember, because um, it did premiere at a film festival, and I remember staying up to read the review as it broke on Hollywood Reporter. And this was months before mm-hmm. it actually opened in the theater. Um, August 22nd, G.I. Jane. I watched that a month ago ago or so. Rewatched it. With uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. I was going to say, apparently, uh, Chris Rock watched it a couple of months ago, too. <laughs> so, yeah. I, was, I, was, I wanted to get to that joke first. I wanted to be... I uh, you, well, well, there you <laughs> did. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I agree with the late, great Gene Siskel. Demi Moore deserved an Oscar nomination for that movie. Because if, if one of the things, you sh- one of the tests you could tell about a performance, can you imagine anyone else in the role? And that is a role that no, I couldn't imagine anyone else doing it but Demi Moore. That is that was tailor made for her. She's great in that movie. It's and it's it's kind of the ultimate Ridley Scott movie. So much rain in that movie. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> uh, you just you kind of smile at all the rain in that movie. Um, and it's just she's really good in that movie. And Bancroft's terrific. Viggo Mortensen before he became an elf or whatever. Oh, yeah. And for him uh, to play yeah. such a hard ass in that movie while wearing those ridiculous shorts uh, is pr- yeah. pretty incredible feat. I just and remember I it being okay, and she's good in it, as you say, but I remember it having some real plot contrivances. I haven't seen it since it came out, but I just remember shaking my head a couple of times. thinking, Oh, boy. But, uh, yeah, she's I mean, good in it. There's no denying that. So The plot contrivances are, I mean, they're kind of, par and parcel with this genre um and they really do some pretzel back bend you know bending over backwards to like get her back enlisted but i mean these there, there's some real scenes that really play to the crowd i mean when she confronts yeah. Anne bancroft i mean that scene is just written to like get the crowd on its feet or when, know, or when she fight. tells when she tells vigo to suck her dick yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that scene just kind of, I mean, the crowd just, I remember the crowd just cheered, yeah. you know, that sequence. I mean, mm-hmm. so, I mean, and like Ridley, it's it's literally Ridley doing a Tony Scott movie. Ridley's <clears> like, you know what, I'm going to do like my brother. I'm going to do one of my brothers. Yeah, do. I see it. I see yeah. that. Yeah. True. Leave it to Beaver. Masterminds. Either one of those? No, I'll pass. Uh, Masterminds <laughs> is, is notable. Um what I remember about Mastermind, I did not see it. Patrick Stewart. It's one of the, it, it, it makes toy soldiers look like Citizen Kane. If you remember, anyone remember toy soldiers? Anybody I do remember Citizen Kane. Anybody? <laughs> but Mastermind. What I remember about Mastermind is when Cecil Niebert reviewed it, they told the story of how when they were pre-planning that week's episode, mm-hmm. they. They were going down to movies to review, and they both said, did we see Mastermind? And the producer, you saw it yesterday. And they were like, what was it about? It was about this. Like, oh, yeah. What was, what, was the other, what was the other movie they said that about? Uh, another one they said that about? Yeah. Um, I have to think. I have to think. It, I know, it, but I know Mastermind. Yeah, Michael Keaton's The Squeeze. All oh, right, The Squeeze. They yep. could, Roger Ebert couldn't remember that movie either. <laughs> uh, it was so forgettable. Okay, Mimic. Actually, I mean, let's Let the... that. No, Mimic, okay, here, I'll have, it is my most controversial uh, take of this episode of the week and of the month. Mimic, to me, remains Guillermo del Toro's best movie. Yes. 
And Speed 2 is an uh, extraordinary action movie. <laughs> and, and I say it because, and here's my other hot take, I am not a big Guillermo del Toro fan as a filmmaker. Uh, visually, he is terrific, but he does not know, like Tim Burton, he does not know how to end his story. He, he, doesn't, know, he doesn't know how to do third acts. Um, Shape of Water, uh, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak, all of he doesn't know how to do third acts. Um, I like Nightmare Alley, frankly, because he went back to the source material, and the source material had an ending. So he had yeah. to kind of, like, actually follow to an actual conclusion. He doesn't know how to do endings. Mimic, because he's working in the old-fashioned creature genre, invasion genre, uh, he has an ending. So Mimic, uh, to me, is, like, my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie. Money Talks. Oh, I'm sorry. Adam, do you have anything to say about Mimic? Uh, not not really. I was other than I know that it was highly compromised uh, by Harvey Weinstein and it had a lot of battles um, during yeah. the production of it. So I, I would be curious to see what his original. I know he's not a fan of it. Uh, Guillermo del Toro isn't of uh, the f- finished product. I'd be curious to see what his original vision was and how it differed. But anyway, yeah, Weinstein really played director in the post production yeah. phase. He really took over a lot of stuff. Uh, Money talks. Anything? No. When I was the other Chris, remember Chris Tucker. This is his year, so this is the yep. Chris Tucker vehicle. This is his take on a Beverly Hills Cop, I guess you could say. Yeah, uh, he steals the movie. Charlie Sheen's a real stiff. I mean, there's no hookers in this movie, so I guess he was bored. And he's still um, stiff. There's one, there's one great sequence in Money Talks, and that is an extended sequence where. He has to pretend to be a wedding guest uh, at the um, uh, reception of a Charlie Sheen who's just gotten married uh, to Heather Locklear, and he, Chris Tucker, pretends to be the uh, half uh, to be the son of Vic Damone and Diane Carroll, and Paul Servino plays uh, the father-in-law, and he gets, he falls in love with him because he's half Italian. And the the sequence just builds and builds, and that's the one great sustained funny sequence in that mm. movie. Pippi Longstocking is coming into your world. That's all I remember about. <laughs> I guess that song was in the trailer or something. We don't have to talk about that, but that was another movie that came out that day. They, they made another one. Can I remember the one in '88 that Pippi Longstocking in '88? They made a. I didn't know they made another one. Oh yeah. Uh. Pippi Longstocking, Stocking Longer, was the name of the sequel. Uh, the Grimm Brothers Snow White on August 24th, anything? Yeah. Made $5,000. I know that one. Hoodlum, August 27th. This is Melvin, or Mario, right, no, Van Peebles? No, it's Bill, no, uh, Bill Duke. Oh, that's right, Bill Duke. Uh, I like it. Um, you know, it's, it's, once again, like, um, you know, it's doing that, uh, you know, Giving us the other side of the story. We've had a lot of gangster movies about, you know, this era, but usually the, you know, Lucky Luciano or Meyer Lansky, you know, the white gangsters. Here we're getting the, uh, uh, the Harlem perspective. So it's, uh, it's, uh, Fishburne, Andy Garcia, I think it's, uh, Luciano, uh, Tim Roth is Duck Schultz, um, uh, Cicely Tyson's in there. Mm. Really good, uh, really good. It's a really good, uh, uh, old-fashioned gangster movie, and uh, I guess the footnote is Fishburne is playing a character named Bumpy 
Johnson, which was a uh, the real life character, which if you go back to Cotton Club, he played a similar character, Bumpy Rhodes, but it's uh, basically the same character, famous character from that from that era. So Fishburne's playing the same character, uh, thirteen years apart. Hmm. Interesting. August 29th, excess baggage. I know this was Alicia Silverstone. It might have been like the big, the big deal of this might be that she, it was the first movie she produced or co-produced or something. Or there was some yes. big deal about it. She produced it. This was part of her her production company package that she got after Clueless. Oh yeah, and Benicio was, was her male counterpart, right? Yeah, I mean the cast is really good. It's Benicio del Toro and Christopher Walken, and there's a couple other people, and it's one of those movies that's typical of that time of that indie period where it has a lot of like stuff going on in it. It doesn't always like, you know, click or go anywhere, but the characters are so kind of original. Like, I mean, Dotoro is on a roll here and Walken's, you know, doing Walken. And, and so you got other stuff and it's kidnapping and it's, you know, mistaken identities and mismatched baggages and all this stuff. So, you, you know, you don't know if it, you can't make sense of it, but you're having fun. Uh, watching, but unfortunately it was not a uh, hit the way I think they, you know, the thing is it's an, it has an indie sensibility, but they sold it like a Alicia Silverstone comedy, and so you get the worst of both things, and and uh, mm-hmm. the director has really uh, had some real promise, because this is the follow-up from the director of Demolition Man, a Sylvester Stallone action movie, which I liked. Um, and this was another follow-up of his, um, but so, there you go. Okay. I like XX Baggage. Didn't do well. Let's end this summer and this episode on a positive note. I do remember seeing this movie when it played theatrically and being very excited about it. She's so lovely. It was a, a Cassavetti script, right, that was picked up by his son. So it was Genic. a yeah, post, post-mortem Cassavetti's effort that they kept in the family, starring Travolta, Robin Wright, and Sean Penn. Right. Very good movie. Uh, Travolta, once again, on a roll here from uh, Pulp Fiction. So he had like three movies that year. Uh, face, you know, he had the big hit Face Off, then he does his indie movie, She's So Lovely, and then um, he kind of has a misfire in the fall with um, Mad City. Uh, but he's very good in this movie. Uh, done the character piece and um sean penn got all the accolades i think he won best actor at can but the real star of the movie is robin wright penn right she's like the real breakout in the movie but and, you know I mean, w- you know one thousand percent i if if cassavetes had survived or lived in a different era i do think sean mm-hmm. penn and robin wright penn at that time uh they would have been cassavetes actors oh yeah 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 no no doubt and and um it's a very Cassavetti story. It's told in two parts, and it's just about uh, a couple of a uh, handful of, you know, crazy people, you know, who who are having who have trouble fitting into society, and how they some manage to make compromises and work, and some just can't really, you know, they're just not meant for mainstream mainstream world. And it's a very it's a very common theme in uh, Cassavetti's movies. So, no, it's a good movie. Adam, you like She's So Lovely? I never saw it. I have to admit. What? Uh, I did not. I know. That's a blind spot. And I just, uh, 
I had in every intention of seeing it when it came out, and I don't know, time passed, and I just kind of got forgotten in the in the scheme of things. So I have not seen it. I hate to say it. I was I was surprised Nick Cassavetes how much he was able to like prove himself as a filmmaker. I mean, he'd done Unhook the Stars previous year, which was a nice uh, earnest movie, also. Um, but because I had I had noticed him, uh, he. Um, he had been in a couple of like those Cinemax. Oh yeah, he was a Cinemax you know, actor. Yeah. Yeah. One thousand uh, percent. He was he was opposite Shannon Worry and Joan Severance and all Tweed, those people. Yeah. Shannon Tweed. Tanya Roberts and the and if you've seen his work and and I use I use quote marks around work, uh, like you know one day he's going to be a really good filmmaker. Well, and, so, and never, so maybe it's maybe it, it, it's a great thing that his father inadvertently helped him be taken a little more seriously. And now I'm sure he's yeah. if he got residuals, I'm sure he's living off of them from the Notebook, which he also directed. Yeah, that kind of that kind of is his his movie, isn't it? Notebook, because uh, he kind of takes his time now if he makes anything. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, summer of 1997 in the books. We'll see you back in a, in a year.